This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. Dr. Matt here, along with uh, Becca and Terry. The gang is gathered. Everyone's so happy to be back to work. It was my birthday, so I took it off yesterday. No, you said you had the uh, you had a speech. I did. I did the speech in the morning. So and then like we I have went... a changing story oh, no. here as well, to why you were gone. You can Happy have birthday. a speech and a birthday. Mm. That's not, how I celebrate. That's not a hard thing to do. But I also had. Like I also went facts. to my wife's uh, book group. Ooh, what that was book? Was actually pretty fun. It was a book uh, by written by a friend of mine that's everybody should have brain cancer. Everybody should have a brain tumor. Oh, okay. That sounds like a positive. It's a friend of mine going through a brain tumor. Oh, that's right. You told me about the book. Amazing, amazing guy. And uh, in fact, we're going to get him on the show. It's a, it's just a great lesson, I think, for all of us that we need to, you know, you need to appreciate what you got. We did that, and then spent the entire rest of the day getting my house ready to be painted. Yeah, moving furniture, taking things off the walls. <sighs> it's a pain. Sanding. Huh? Yeah. That's why my rule <sighs> is just don't paint and just don't let anyone in your house. The the easier thing would just be to move. Well, there's that. Because we've already moved everything. Yeah. And you I'm could like, have just moved it into a well truck. We may as well just be moving. Yeah. Yeah. To something that's already painted. Mm. That we didn't have to do all the work. The prep. Ah. Oh, boy, crazy. Speaking yeah. of moving. Yeah. Trump's announced, apparently, the three, the, the Americans held by the North Koreans have been released. They're on their way. They're on their way. So uh, that's great news. He's going to greet them at Andrews Air Force Base at 2 o'clock in the morning. Oh, that'll be fun. Do you think he'll do that? Yeah. Okay. You got to get up for those guys. It's a big story. Don't you think? <laughs> I, I guess. <laughs> it's all good. I'd get up for that. And uh, that's, that's great news. Uh, apparently, also, um, the, the man running for uh, Congress. West Virginia Senate. Senate. Uh, in the runoff with the in the GOP primary, who was the one that was using kind of racial overtones? Yes, he was talking about Mitch McConnell's China family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he didn't win. Okay, after the President Trump put out a tweet saying, "Don't vote for this guy," <laughs> he was too much for President Trump. Well, because he'd get creamed. In well, the, yeah, by the Dems, right? That's the idea. And maybe he wouldn't. I and, mean, the maybe... Qu- and the quotes from the guy, Doug Blankenship's his name. He's like, I'm so confused. <laughs> I don't understand. What the problem What is. happened? What a deal. Yeah. And then the Cohen headline. Apparently, a yeah. Russian oligarch has been giving money to Cohen for a business transaction, but it yep. happens to be going to the exact same account yeah. where he was paying off an alleged you know, quiet hush money to for... a friend of Trump. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. A friend of Trump. I mean, that right there is, that's pretty bad. Yeah. It also came out that uh, AT&T was paying Cohen for insight, as they call it, into the future presidency. So that's, that's not necessarily illegal. But it's it's this idea that AT&T, with a lot of business in front of the government, was paying for um, influence and being close to the president to find out what he's going to do. So people were, were were selling their adjacent nature to the president. Oh, wow. To yeah, gain influence. Yeah, because he's... It's called influence peddling. He's a, he's a it's buddy a, of It's the a president. swampy habit that they were supposed to stop. No, they're draining that. Is that what it is? Yeah, they're getting rid of that. 
filling it back up. See, it's no longer politicians doing it. Now it's your so the, attorney to the president. The Russian oligarch thing is like, so who actually paid off all these pe- paid off the people that got yeah. money from Cohen for Trump to make things go and away? What exactly and, was the business deal? And, and then there's a business. Yeah, it's you really, just can't. You, you really don't play with the Russian and, oligarchs because those are the ones that are very tied to Putin. And then of course people are like, well, I hope Mueller's on this. And then it came out that Mueller's already talked to the oligarchs. So we'll see how that goes. Holy cow! Mueller's two or three. Three months ahead of the news. It's fine. Yeah, Just That's quietly doing his job. I wonder who keeps leaking all this stuff. I don't know. Well, the guy talking about it was the lawyer for one of the people that oh, were paid off. That's right. Then it was question like, where'd you get your info? And then the New York Times confirmed, yep, that's what we found out too. <laughs> so the whole story just keeps going. And guess what? It won't matter. It will not matter. Yeah, none of this matters. Moving on. Seems like. Okay, let's get to the headlines, Terry. What else is The going Speaker on? of the Iranian Parliament... I'll skip his name because, you know, out of of respect for the friends and family. He launched a vicious attack Wednesday on Donald Trump saying the U.S. president does not have the mental capacity to deal with issues and adding ominously that he that he only understands the language of force, meaning the oh, president. Wow. Yeah. Just hours after President Trump withdrew the U.S. from the 2015 nuclear deal, Iranian lawmakers chanted death to America and lit a paper U.S. flag on fire during an impromptu protest inside the country's parliament. Okay. So it's all going well. Yeah. Uh, lawmakers also burned a piece of paper meant to represent the deal, which lifted most U.S. and international sanctions in exchange for restrictions on Iranians' nuclear program. After repeatedly blasting the agreement as the worst deal ever on one side, Trump pulled the U.S. out Tuesday and vowed to impose the highest level of economic sanctions on Iran. Trump claimed the move will make America safer, though Washington's European allies warned it would only in- inflame tensions in the region. By the way, remember, Trump was doing the same thing with North Korea, a lot of saber rattling, blah, right. blah, blah, and now they're going to meet and they're freeing hostages. So maybe he's doing it again. You maybe. Know? I mean, sure, Europe's not for it. Yeah. But, you know, we're, we're, Donald says he's making America great again. Not sure. making Europe great. Now, I, I think the French president had a better approach. Is l- let's end the deal when we have something to fall back on. Yeah, well, there's a, Don't a better just plan. end the deal to basically allow Iran just to start their program back up again. Because now there's no restrictions if they continue under the deal. Yeah. Now that it's been violated. That's one way to look at it. So we'll see what happens. In comments from North Korea on Wednesday morning, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo spoke of his hope that the U.S. and North Korea can work together for peace during his trip to the once forbidding country where it's been reported this morning by President Trump that three Americans have been released and are headed home. And this apparent goodwill gesture ahead of the expected Mm. meeting between President Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un in the coming weeks. Speaking ahead of the anticipated release, Pompeo said, for decades we have been adversaries. We are hoping that we can work together to resolve this conflict, take away threats of the world, and make your country have all the opportunities your people so richly deserve. Please ignore the fact that we just went back on an agreement with another country. Yeah. Don't never mind that. That's just kind of something that's hanging out there as you're looking to negotiate well, another deal. And now everybody's like, okay, so is a deal with the United States only for one presidency? Yeah. Then every time we get a new president, does the deal change? It's kind of troubling. Yeah. Then you only have about a two to four year lifespan, depending on election cycle, right. maybe eight years if he's lucky. So we'll see what happens. Police went door to door overnight in Hawaii to force residents to flee from two new vents emitting dangerous gases from the 
Kilauea uh, volcano in areas where the lava has been pouring into the streets and backyards for the past week. Some 2,000 residents were ordered to leave their communities on Hawaii's Big Island last Thursday when when the volcano erupted, but some ignored the order and opted to stay to look after their property. How do you look after your property when lava's coming at it? Did you see that video of just the lava slowly consuming a Mustang? Yeah, and an R2-D2 trash can next to it. Oh, that was tragic. My son was traumatized because look at r2 I'm like, I, mean, I know and it was well just if you just spray it down just spray it down the lava will just cool it is interesting my, my son's connection to lava are lava monsters from marvel cartoons yeah see how you've ruined it's him? great like remember the marvel uh, go over the lava monsters he's don't like let yeah him move to, don't let him move to hawaii it's great but on tuesday two new fissures spewing out dangerous volcanic gas prompted hawaii county to issue a cell phone alert ordering stragglers to get out immediately. Police then followed up the alert with personal visits. Edwin Montoya, 76, had planned to keep, uh, uh, stayed to keep thieves away from his family's property, but was forced to evacuate from the dangerous gases. He was, I'm in my truck now on my way up the road. The police came down here and made me leave. Authorities said they now believe the communities have been fully evacuated. Wow. As the lava slowly uh, creeps into their It's just amazing to watch. It just goes. It just keeps going. They say it's slowing down, but, you know, what do they know? Yeah. Science. Scientists. Finally, the Defense Intelligence Agency. Yeah. Now, this came out a few months back where the the, the uh, Pentagon was had a whole department that studied UFOs. That you had, you had pilots in combat, in theater, and they would see things, and they had video and, and responses and firsthand accounts right, of right. the pilots seeing something zip through the 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 area whatever and they didn't know what it was so they were studying what these things are and it came out they know they're you know aliens but they don't Uh know so the defense intelligence agency uh studied the possibility of interstellar travel at speeds faster than the speed of light according to a study obtained by klas tv in las vegas through a freedoms of information act request the study titled Warp Drive, Dark Energy, and Manipulation of Extra Dimensions acknowledges that the technology to create warp drives powered by dark matter remain theoretical and may not be actualized until many years in the future. Wow. It concludes that warp drives are a tantalizing possibility and one that is most certainly worth a deeper investigation. Wouldn't that be great if we could, like, instead of having ludicrous speed, we could really have oh, yeah. warp drive in our Tesla? Just like Star Wars or Star Trek, because Star Wars, I think they go light speed. I'm not sure how they refer to their speed. Is warp better than light, or not is sure. light faster than warp? It's not just, sure. This I, is a question we need to get into. I don't get hung up in the details. I just watch the Star Trek or Star Wars show that happens to be on. Yeah, I don't think until we can handle, you know, the regular speed limit, right? We probably ought not be pushing warp. Well, it is a, th- a nice little tool in TV shows to kind of skip the through the, the the travel part. Yeah. It's like if you watch the TV show 24, yeah. they're always racing across Los Angeles during rush hour times. Right. It's like it's, you know, when they tell you it's like 5 o'clock in the afternoon and they zip right across the entire city, you can't do that. No, because in 24, it would really be like 5 o'clock and then it would all of a sudden be 9.30 before right. he's actually able to do something. Right. So they skip that part because it's really non-consequential. Yeah. And it really drags the show down if you're stuck in traffic. But they're not using warp speed. No, but I mean, that, that's if they actually tried to document traveling between planets, it would take forever. Yeah. So they just skipped that part with warp. But just imagine all the good music, the books you could read oh, right. on the trip. Your kids could like, play the license plate game. Literally every piece of music ever made by humanity you it'd could listen so, to by the time you got to the next planet. Oh, you'd be so informed. 
Awesome. Awesome stuff. Hey, up next, we're going to be talking about um, suicide by racial and ethnic minorities. Um, Is it possible that we're underestimating the impact of suicide in those communities simply because culturally they don't want to talk about it? They don't they don't go there. And uh, some more insight about uh, suicide and how it impacts all of us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping us live longer, love stronger and lead healthier, happier lives. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, nothing seems to be more complicated than our mental health uh, uh, approach in this country. We see story after story. We hear of suicide rates climbing. We hear of uh, access and ability to treat certain people for mental health issues and just the privacy needs, the cultural impact. So we wanted to talk about um, we've, we've heard the suicide rates are are on the rise and uh, we found a wonderful article um, that is, I think, very enlightening about some of the numbers and how they impact us culturally and depending on the culture we're from. So we wanted to bring in an expert who could walk us through that today. Dr. Kimia Davis is joining us. She's an associate professor of sociology and criminal studies at Salem College and uh, wrote a wonderful article um, titled Suicide Isn't Just a white people thing. And uh, Kimia, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. This is, you know, it, it really, it was kind of mind-boggling to me because, again, this is one of those things that we don't think about. We do hear that over and over that uh, the, the white population tend to be um, those that are more likely, more prone, um, have a higher risk of committing suicide, except you're talking, uh, in your article, you talk about the fact that we may be underestimating the impact, the reality of suicide in some of our minority communities as well. Yes. So uh, as a criminologist, my focuses are on suicide, suicidal self-harm, and other forms of violence. And the way I look at it is um, you can look at the ways that people harm themselves and harm other people. And, And so... One thing to consider is when we talk about suicidal thoughts, we don't have data on how many, of course, people are thinking suicidal thoughts and how many people attempt suicide. And that's definitely even lower when we're talking about racial and ethnic groups where suicide is even more stigmatized and even more silenced. Mm. And so um, this past winter term, I taught, taught a course about the cultural dynamics of mental health services and suicide prevention services. Because my students told me, they were like, Dr. Dennis, this is an important topic, and they don't hear about it. Like, they didn't really hear about it until they took my courses. They say, Dr. Dennis, until I took your courses, I had never heard anyone in my family or community discuss this topic. Mm. It's true. I guess this is so important because the numbers – the numbers matter to all communities because the numbers, it seems like, would also determine the the focus on where we focus our care, how much care communities get, where we pay attention, and what we pay attention to. Exactly. Uh, so one common issue is that 
99% of mental health organizations and suicide prevention organizations are considered to be power dominant in terms of demographic. So when you look at the people who work for the organizations, people who are on the board of directors, the majority of donors, the majority of researchers, the majority of research topics, they tend to represent white, middle, upper class, um, higher socioeconomic status in terms of education, occupation, and also majority heterosexual cisgender. And that's not intentional oftentimes. Um, it, it's a representation of the population size. But one thing that organizations don't consider is how that reflects on outreach efforts. Um, so many organizations are not doing outreach efforts, but when they do outreach efforts, you have to consider how your organization looks. Hmm. For example, if your organization is predominantly heterosexual cisgender, will LGBT communities be like, hey, this looks like me, let me go get help. So that's why we have organizations devoted to reaching certain groups, not because these groups don't want to reach the mainstream organizations, but because these are already issues that are really silenced in these communities. And, um, so and that is example, cultural, right? I mean, some of that's, yeah, give us the example. Yeah, so it's it's a combination. It's it's cultural, it's within people's families, it's also religious for most uh, groups that are intertwined with religion, but it's also part of society where no matter where you go, so for instance, when I ask people to meet me at mental health organizations, because I know people won't go if I leave it up to them, I say, well, I'll meet you there at 12 o'clock. When they show up, there's nobody in the organization oftentimes who quote-unquote, looks like them or may have a similar background as them, so they already feel ashamed, mm. right? So yeah. imagine what it feels like to walk into an environment where you really need help, right? You need help for substance abuse. You need help for suicidal thoughts, and you walk in, and the doctor does not have any real cultural similarities to you. Um, and that's also linked to when we talk about the DSM, um, I'm very critical of the DSM, not because I don't respect the experts, but because the DSM has been updated in the past because previously, quote-unquote, homosexuality was in the DSM, right? So the DSM and is so the diagnostic what, manual used by therapists yeah. to determine, you know, officially what is a diagnosis of a mental health issue and what isn't. Exactly, right? And you're critical so of it because it doesn't rep- it's not culturally represented. Well, I think that it's a template, and we need to understand the difference between a template and how to practically apply the template. So when I do presentations and community work, I always tell mental health practitioners, medical doctors, that you can't wait until your career has started to now say you want to do a diversity workshop. <laughs> diversity inclusivity, I, I use the phrase 365 days diversity. Yeah. So the moment someone becomes pre-med in undergrad, they need to start taking courses, and every course needs to include a demographic variant. And that's one thing that we do a lot in the social sciences. So as a criminologist, 
all of my courses, whether it's I teach serial killers, for goodness sakes, my serial killers course breaks it down by demographics in terms of the serial killers and the victims. Mm. So everything that I do includes mental health components, suicidal ideation components, and I break every course down by demographics. So, and that's what I want mental health practitioners, nurses, medical doctors. I want everyone to grasp that we as people, there's nothing that we do that's not correlated. It doesn't have to be caused by, but it's correlated with our culture. It's correlated with what we were taught since childhood. It's correlated with spirituality, uh, religion. So, for instance, when we do programs in predominantly Hispanic and predominantly African-American communities, it's very common for people to say, well, I pray it away. Mm-hmm. Or there are people who believe going to the doctor is demonic, or people who believe that, you know, believing that all of this is a, a result of just not praying enough. And mm-hmm. there's still people in 2018 who will tell you if they hear voices, they believe that it's demonic possession. And, and I explain to people, so let's, if we want to use a spiritual angle, let's address how God gave us these resources to use for a reason. And so that's, that's a way that I want medical experts to know that this is not about just doing a diversity training. This is about how we need to address how culture, demographics are a component of all of this. And students need to be taught this from the moment they declare themselves as pre-med. Yeah. We're speaking with Dr. Kimia Dennis, who is a uh, an associate professor of sociology and criminal studies at, Sa- at Salem College. And uh, in her part of her expertise, she's been focusing on suicide and just our our ability to understand it cross-culturally. Um, because, again, like you're saying, the culture impacts Everything. I mean, I, I think of the the BMI index that doctors use about your weight to determine your level of obesity, and we've had people on our show talking about the origination of that was it was it's mm-hmm. it's a device, a tool used for a male, and yet it's yeah. now been generalized to the female body as well, and it's it's kind of it, it just doesn't it's it doesn't inc- it's it doesn't take into account the the real diversity I think of human uh, of humans, and so I think. Part of what you're teaching us is it's important, and especially in suicide, because a lot of people think it's a white thing, um, and yet Mm -hmm. culturally it's happening. Talk about how how it might in by us misunderstanding it, how it might be, for example, impacting uh, the um, the American Indian, the Native Americans, Mm -hmm. uh, and the minority or the African American community. How how is our our lack of accurate information impacting their communities. Yeah. So, and, and also when we talk about Asian diaspora communities, so mm. it's impacting because when I do collaborations with suicide prevention organizations and I, and I say, well, let's address demographic cultural variants. It's very common for people to respond with, well, whites have the highest rate of suicide. Right. Right. And, and I have to remind people that that's the highest rate of completed suicide, but that's also in proportion to population size. So whites are about 77% of the United States population, including white Hispanics. So when we talk about like violent crime, we're talking about disproportionate representation of African Americans in comparison to population size. When we're talking about suicide, we're talking about 
disproportionate representation of whites. Hmm. Whites being 77%, therefore being represented highly in suicide, and that's various forms of suicide. Risk for white men in particular, it's mostly firearm-based suicide. And so that notion, though, that, well, whites are the highest rate, therefore we're just going to really reach whites, um, it really ties into what I said previously where if you're intentionally reaching whites, just be honest about that, right? Yeah. yeah. But, but usually organizations are not intentionally only reaching whites. It's just so embedded in the organization that they really don't do demographic data for their organization. So that's why I tell people, do demographic data, do an annual assessment where you, you address the demographics of your organization. Do an evaluation and say, who's in my organization? Who showed up at these events? What demographics do they represent? And so this is how it has a trickle-down effect, though, on American Indian, Alaskan Native populations in particular, because we now have organizations formed for the sole basis of addressing opioid addiction, substance abuse, suicide in, in American Indian, Alaskan Native populations. However, these organizations need grants, right? Yeah. And we have to say, to whom are they competing to get this money, right? Um, you know, they're oftentimes competing for federal dollars, for state, local money. Right. Um, they need volunteers. And, and I keep telling people, if you keep supporting these mainstream organizations, you're taking away resources that are really needed for these populations that have been really, really, really disadvantaged and not always by choice, right? Right. And, um, and, it, and we can also use your BMI example as an example. When we talk about body mass index, it doesn't address different body types right. that are linked to different cultures of people. So true. So well, true. You know, right? But we I'm, throw it out there all the time as the standard that <laughs> yeah. everyone's accepted, but it's biased. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I mean, so we have cultures of people where having a large torso is normal. Right. We're having a larger stomach, larger hips, a larger butt. Yeah. If you have a personal trainer, they oftentimes will try to get rid of that big butt, <laughs> whereas that's very connected to your culture that's right. and your, your family genetics, right? And, and so that's really an example of what the DSM and what organizations are doing. And I always tell people when I talk about this, there's no need to tense up in terms of being offended. This is not a personal attack. It's more so saying, let's stop the word games. Let's stop putting blinders on and pretending that this isn't happening. Right. Because what happens is when people pretend this isn't happening, organizations pretend it's not happening. And then the bad outcome, people say, how did this happen? It happened because decades you're pretending this isn't happening it's so true and then and then we we but we're smart enough you know we're smart enough to figure this out but we're maybe not smart enough to it doesn't seem like we haven't been focused enough to move the needle or like to like you know to start thinking more cross-culturally especially as we're allocating funds i mean if you weren't allocating Mm -hmm. funds that's one thing but when all of a sudden you know native americans or native alaskan uh, alaskan natives can't get the funding they need, even though they have the highest suicide rate um, and mm-hmm. self-harm rate. I mean, it's, it's sad. It's tragic. Yeah. And, and you know what? I have to challenge this notion of smart enough to figure it out. Yeah. What's going on? With you? <laughs> I don't think it's, 
about smart enough to figure this out. I think it's about three dynamics, power, privilege, and money. Mm. And because here's the thing, if it was really about just just listening to us and saying we're going to implement demographic cultural variance courses and all pre-med courses, you're going to be required to learn that throughout your career as you're getting your mental health license and so forth. If it was really that simple, people would have said, been there, done that, right? Right. But instead, um, it's not a requirement for accreditation for most institutions and most programs. So you can go through your entire pre-med program. You can go through medical school. You can become a mental health practitioner. And your accreditation does not require any proof that you've learned about cultural variants in suicide, in mental health, in physical health. You can put the word culture in there randomly from your annual assessment, but there's no need to require that culture means anything for your program. So that's why I say it's not about being smart enough. It's about organizations, companies, and schools just doing the surface-level task yeah. <laughs> and uh, not really wanting to challenge. Um, you have to, I mean, you really have to challenge the establishment. You really have to tear it down, and it's okay to offend people. It's, that's social change. Like, if people walked around smiling during social change, that means social change isn't happening, Something, right? Something's not changing, <laughs> right. You know, you know, there's no such thing ever as social change resulting from kumbaya, right? right? So I tell organizations, you know, if you hire me as a consultant, if you have me as a speaker, whatever you have me do, just recognize that there are going to be some really angry people. And that includes professors who are now going to be required to revamp their courses, to change their learning outcomes for their programs. And I think that's a good thing. We can't just leave it up to people to say, hey, I think I'll implement this. Well, you know, how successful has that been? When we're talking about suicidal self-harm, if you do a community event, you cannot act, act baffled if the majority of people who come to the community event are white middle class. White working class, white poor are not going to come to these suicide prevention events. African-Americans, people of Asian descent, Alaskan Natives, Hispanics are not going to come to most suicide events. Not necessarily because they might not be having suicidal thoughts. A lot of people are having suicidal thoughts, but they think they can self-heal. They think they can self-medicate. They think they can pray it away or have positive thoughts or keep themselves busy or the whole opioid issue, right? Yeah. Alcoholism. I mean, these are all ways, and whites do the same thing in terms of self-healing. However, you know, being the population size majority, you're more likely to see whites at these events, but still you're still less likely to see poor whites because poor whites feel judged as well. This notion that, you know, your, your suicidal thoughts are because, you know, you're a poor white person. Yeah. And, and, um, and we can't help you. And and also insurance comes into all this as well. Oh, when we tell people to get help, you know, but you've got to be, yeah. In. Yeah. And you've got to be, ins- yeah. And the, and the insurance are the ones and, and the insurance are held by certain populations as well. Uh, Kimia, I wish we had more time. This is such a, such an important topic you're bringing up. And I, I just appreciate so much your willingness to, uh, to push on all of us and our thinking, our and and really, if we want to change 
suicide, then we have to understand suicide from a multi-diverse cultural approach. Um, otherwise, you are only going to have a certain population ever showing up and not be able to even access those that d- don't believe uh, a similar way. Powerful stuff. Again, Kemia Dennis is her name, Dr. Kemia Dennis. She's an associate professor of sociology and criminal studies at Salem College and author of the article, Suicide Isn't Just a White People Thing. We will continue uh, giving you the insights you need so that you can live a healthier life and uh, try to understand those around you as well. There are reasons people are making these difficult decisions that they make. And um, most of us, I don't even think we fully understand. We don't even partially understand the the diversity that goes on um, in this world, do we? Interesting stuff. We'll continue the journey. More straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, um, I had a chance yesterday to go to uh, my wife's book group. And in her, I mean, it's not something I I do often, but uh, I happened to be with her and she invited me and I went and heard a friend of mine, a friend I grew up with, his uh, name is Dr. David Colliker. He uh, is a um, was a endodontist and um, practices an endodontist. And he's he wrote a book titled "Everybody Needs a Brain Tumor," and he's my age, uh, forty nine years old, and has a brain tumor, and has had it for about I think uh, seven plus nine years, I think, and. You know, he talked about he talks about in the book the impact of a brain tumor, but really everybody needs it because in the end it takes you back to what really is most important. And some of the the interesting things we're going to have him on the show sometime in the future, but um, it, it really is interesting the discussion we had about when one of us is sick uh, and others start noticing it kind of a lot of the lessons that have that that come about because of that. He talked about how they um as a family they they didn't want everybody involved. It wasn't a, a everybody decision. It was their family's processing uh this this situation. And he 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 you know was very private about it. He was a practicing endodontist. You don't want your endodontist to have a brain tumor and so if everybody knew about the brain tumor, um, even though it wasn't impairing him physically uh, at that time, he didn't want everyone to know about it. And does do we have the right to that privacy? Think about all these stars that and famous people that the minute they start acting a little strange, people start throwing out their their health issues. Think about what we've what's happened with President um, uh, Trump and his health and everybody questioning his mental health or Hillary Clinton and her physical health. Now, I get it if they're going to be the president, but what about just your dentist? There were stories told about the fact that, you know, people would try to figure stuff out by asking the kids of this person. So how's, what's going on with your dad? I, I noticed that this is going on. What's going on? So they're like shaking down the kids to get the information or they they also talked about just the impact it had on the family and how and how you have to go through the process of deciding what to tell what kids at what age and how the kids can process certain things. Um, it was just an amazing experience to watch 
somebody that was is basically me um, going through such a very difficult process, and then to watch how his wife, uh, who was we've grown up with, we all went to high school together, we were all really good friends, to watch how she's taken care of him, and uh, and how you just deal with it. Um, how at first you think you don't know how you can overcome it, but you're overcoming it and you're handling it, and everyone can in the end handle it. He also brought up uh, some pretty interesting points about the power of friends. Um, how a lot of friends would come over and, you know, the friends would come over and say, hey, can, what can I do to help? I know I want to help. I need to do so. I want to do something to help. And, you know, she would always just say, oh, no, we're good. We're good. We're good. And then the other friends that just say, no, we're bringing you dinner every Wednesday. It's just going to happen. So just deal with it. Now, you don't have to eat it, but we're going to bring it to you. And they just brought it. And she said, amazingly, it was the greatest blessing of all time because – for some reason, every Wednesday is when her life would fall apart. But she always knew her friends would be bringing her dinner. And so maybe a lot of us need to learn simply the idea that we don't always have to ask if we can help. Maybe sometimes you just need to intuit or sense if they need the help. And then if they do, just organize it. You can always freeze, you know, some food that that somebody brings over. You can take a casserole and put the casserole in the freezer if you've got too much food. But other than that, just serve and give and care. And it, they've talked about the fact about how how everything is more important now, how everybody in the family is now more willing to pick up and, and help around the house. Um, when uh, the mom, Susan Colicker, would ask, you know, if one of the kids to take the garbage out or who wants to take the garbage out? If none of the kids respond, then Dave, who has the brain tumor and is uh, now in a wheelchair, would say, oh, I'll take it out. And everybody, all the kids immediately would jump up and run to go take the garbage out. So even though it is a horrendous thing to go through, um, they talked about the fact that there's benefits. It's changing their family. It's changing the fact that they know they know more clearly what matters most. They know the importance of family and how it comes first. They say, I love you more. They're more connected. They're more real. And the the benefit is something that was supposed to create a life expectancy of five years has given David nine. And so they feel grateful and they feel like they're living on borrowed time, but they're grateful for it. And um, I, I guess everybody in the end of the book group, a lot of people are like, well, yeah, maybe not everybody needs a brain tumor, but if we could learn the lessons of it um, and, and take in the, the lessons. And why I bring it up is um, – it's uh, it's brain. I can't. I think it's like Brain Health Awareness Month. And the funny thing about our lives, the funny thing about our health is, very rarely do we ever get our brains scanned. Um, but today, you know, there's a lot that can go wrong in your brain, and we don't pay attention to it. We know that everyone wears pink for breast cancer awareness. Uh, this is the month where you wear gray for gray matter awareness, because gray matter is the healthy. Uh, is the healthy brain tissue. And so just be thinking about it and just be grateful and know that uh, you may not need a brain tumor, but you can live the lessons that we all learn. Again, the name of the book is Everybody Needs a Brain Tumor. Um, David Colliker is the author. He wrote it with his son, John. 
It's just a quick read. It's something you could read in a night, but it is something, too, that uh, you might want to read with your kids and talk about the importance of family and all the other principles that come with it. Anyway, we'll continue the journey and uh, continue to follow the life of David Colliker, a good friend and just a great, a great teacher for all of us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Do you ever feel like the weekend simply isn't long enough? When it comes down to it, you have about two and a half days, right? That doesn't seem like nearly enough time to get the yard work, the home improvement projects done, the kids' soccer games attended, homework, everything else, that, uh, that and still having some time to relax. So some smaller companies have started implementing a four-day work week and have uh, seen success with that. Dr. Paul Powers is a management consul- uh, psychologist and consultant. He joined us not long ago to talk about the pros and cons of the four-day work week. I began the interview by asking about the cons. What are the cons of a four-day work week? Well, I don't, I, I don't see many except for the fact that we as human beings don't evolve quickly. We don't change quickly. Uh, people who tell me that, oh, they're very change-skilled and, um, you know, they can, uh, they can adapt very easily, I tell them that, well, as an experiment, we sent someone out to your, uh, your car in the parking lot and we had them change all the buttons on your radio to see how you like that. <laughs> and people, people stop for a minute and they look at me. And I say, okay, I haven't done that. But, but that feeling of, oh, my God, someone was in my space. They were changing things. Right. That's hard for me. I, I suggest if you want to do a little experiment at home to see how change-skilled you are, uh, take your alarm clock or your clock radio or whatever you use and put it on the other side of the bed. Go into the bathroom. Move your toothbrush and your toothpaste to the other side of the sink. Move a few basic things that you do every day the same thing, the same way, the same time, day after day, and try to change them. And you will suddenly see that we as human beings do not evolve very quickly. A few years ago, they found out, well, actually now about 15 years ago, they found up in the Alps, the the remainder as the uh, the snow cap uh, uh, goes away, um, they found uh, this hunter who is, you know, a thousand years old, and uh, you know, he had uh, very uh, warm clothes, and he had had uh, some mushrooms for medicine, and you know, very highly evolved in, in many ways. And I said, "Wow, way up there in the mountains and whatnot." And uh, they finally result the the results came back. This, you know, and he was a man. And my wife said, "Well, of course he's a man. He hadn't stopped and asked for directions. That's that's, that's <laughs> he was why up, he was stuck dead. on the side of the mountain." <laughs> On the side of the mountain, and he was a and and we as human beings, uh, uh, you know, I t- tell that to men to say, you know, do, is it easy for you to stop and ask for directions? And their answer is, well, with GPS now, I don't have to. I don't have to rely on others. I don't have to change my habits or my behaviors. Uh, think of the places where we park, uh, you know, as, as an example. So we get into a routine. We as human beings, uh, we tend to do the same thing day after day, week after week. So so adapting. Uh, to a changed schedule sometimes is a little discombobulated. Right. Oh, oh, by by the way, if you're a human resource person, uh, you now have to jockey uh, people's work schedules, and that requires a little bit more work. And so that, I guess, could be considered a downsize, except, oh, by the way, for human resource people, that's their their job, 
is to, uh, <laughs> right. is to uh, accommodate people's, people's needs. And oh, by the way, when people have a four-day work week or a three-day weekend, um, they feel happier. They have more time for their life. They have more time for their children. And the research, again, found a, you know, a meta-analysis of over 200, I think it was like 220, 225 studies, found that happy employees have, on average, 31 higher percent productivity, ah. three times higher creativity. That it's, it's God's gift to productivity and organizational development, not to mention the benefits to family time. Now, there, there are some glitches. Let's consider that I want my weekend but I, you know, the traditional Saturday and Sunday kind of weekend, but yet I'm in retail. Right. Well, now we're going to have to do some work because uh, Saturdays and Sundays are the busiest days for retail. So maybe your weekend, does your, even your extended weekend, it doesn't end up on the weekend anymore. So that requires uh, some adjustment. But the eight-hour workday, which, by the way, the, the organized uh, labor movement uh, earned for us all a few generations ago. Uh, I talked to many professionals that say, if I only had an eight-hour workday, at least if I'm, um, we're being square with each other and saying I'm here 10 hours a day, but I only have to be here four days, then in fact, this whole sort of work expanding, you know, the number of hours we're yeah. there, et cetera, et cetera, is, is uh, a benefit to people's uh, personal lives. Oh, yeah. I mean, really, to have the freedom, to have uh, the opportunity to, because it would alter our family lives. You could even, as a family, if you're a dual-income family, you could rotate, you know, dad works Tuesday through Friday, mom works Monday through Thursday, and you now have a parent home only, or parents were working only three days out of the week. It could be really a cool opportunity for everybody. Well, good for the kids, good for the parents and the kids to bond and spend time together, et cetera, et cetera. But it also, again, drops to the family bottom line of only needing to pay for professional daycare three out of five days. Mm-hmm. Oh. And so when you think about it, would would there be the day, though, that we, we do move this to a four-hour work week and the efficiency of the younger generation, they're much more efficient with their technology or what have you, would they then just end up paying less? Would it impact how we pay? No, because, uh, well, I, I guess some companies can try to kind of get away with that, but what that will do is negatively impact their recruiting costs. That's true. Uh, again, um, uh, the, the whole notion of having you know more flexible, uh, more flexibility at work and whatnot uh, tends to uh, uh, save us money in recruiting. Uh, the employee uh, recruiting costs of uh, employment agencies, uh, contingency agencies, uh, retained executive uh, 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 recruiters, executive headhunters, etc. That's a billion dollar. In fact, it's supposed to be now a little bit lot more than that, uh, a billion-dollar-plus industry in the United States. We could drive those costs down if, uh, my, if my, I could drive my company's costs down uh, if it was easier for me to recruit people. And, uh, by the way, also improving working conditions helps me retain employees so I don't have to go out and replace as many of them. So, again, that's another human resource uh, uh, savings that drops to the bottom line. 
That was Dr. Paul Powers, again, a management psychologist and consultant, talking to us about the four-day work week. Interesting stuff. You know, we all could probably find more creative ways to do our work, right, and spend our time. This is the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier lives. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. Dr. Matt here. Along with uh, Terry and Becca, the gang is gathered. Researching all night long. Terry never sleeps. He has piles and piles of... Of information. Mm, well, yeah, sort of. Yeah. I yeah. mean, piled in your phone. Yeah, it's all in like links and saved websites. Yeah. And, yeah. Tiny, yeah, in your it's tiny great. little phone. Yeah. Such a great way to save Mother Nature, too. Well, yeah, I don't have to go to an office supply store and buy paper. Yeah. So I've ruined that economy, but, you know, <laughs> to each his own. I mean, sure, you're pulling down, you know, staples. Well, yeah, and then, you know, at some point, someone, you know, burning some property of matter to create electricity and maybe causing some sort of pollution, but, you know, it's fine. To power my computer. Yeah, I mean. Which means I can save. There's always an end result that might not be the best. Yeah, yeah. you just, yeah. yeah. Or a beginning result in that case. Who knows? It's a great point. It's a great point. you went to a book club. Yeah. Was this by your choice? Yeah, it was actually... Because it feels like something I would kind of... If I was asked to go to a book club, the, the term dragging me to the book club would be how it would well, be described. Well, yeah, no, but this was different because I was already with my wife and I was dropping her off at the book club. Okay. But the person, the, the book they were talking about was a friend of mine and it was his book. Interesting. And I wanted to... Oh, okay. I yeah. wanted to hear about the book. You had, you had a connection. But I, I didn't go right in. I just sat in my car because I was going to write. I had some writing to do. Okay. So I was just going to write in my car waiting for my wife and actually would have been very content doing that. Mm. But but I didn't want to go encroach and, you know, take over this thing because right. my friend's talking. Mm-hmm. So anyway, but my wife went in and said, no, you got to come in. All right. They well. want you to come in. But I, I, by the way, I love a, I named, not to brag, but mm. I named but it's gonna feel my like wife's book club. I named, I gave them the name. Really? Because I, I mentioned them on TV once when I was doing a show, a segment on TV. And the, the Brooke Walker, who was interviewing me, said, So mm. I, you went to a book club and talked about your book? I'm like, Yeah, it's my wife's book club. And she's like, Oh, really? Do they have a name? And I did. I didn't know if they, did had they have a name. name? They it's didn't have. Book it. Club. Apparently, they had a name. But some people name their club. Okay. And but I had just watched my son name his um, soccer team mm. like the Dragons. Yeah. So I'm like, yeah, they, they call themselves the Dragons. <laughs> and so that is now officially like 15 years later, the name of their book club, the Dragons. Not like the Dragon Book Club, but Dragons. No, just Dragons. Do they have like T-shirts and hats and things or yeah. keychains? They have. A, they have. They have everything. Yeah. <laughs> And they have uniforms. It's really. But do they have a cell phone holder? You have no. you have yeah. hundreds of cell phone holders in your office. I have I have probably yeah. I was going to say hundreds. I was going to say thousands, but that may be a little. I probably a have reach. just under a thousand. Okay. 
I don't know. I have huge boxes. So somehow we've got to start giving those away. Well, I mean, we have these events happening next door at the basketball arena all the time. We could do some sort of air cannon. Ooh. Just yeah. sort of disperse them I don't throughout know the crowd. I don't know these little cell phone holders. Little hunks I, of plastic at yeah, people? It's probably, okay. Well, yeah. that's, I mean, it's one idea. I think, I think the police call it a projectile at that point. <laughs> So we probably ought not do that, but uh, we'll 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 figure out a way to get you. Hey, if you're a listener, oh no, just I don't know. We'll figure it out. Come by eBay. Come visit us. <laughs> we'll sell them on eBay. <laughs> Let's get to the headlines, Terry. What else is going on in the world? Iran's furious backlash to Donald Trump's announcement that the U.S. would be quitting the 2015 nuclear deal continues, with the Islamic Republic's leader saying that they can now resume their nuclear program without any kind of restrictions. If necessary, we can begin our industrial enrichment without any limitations, the president of Iran said. Until implementation of this decision, we will wait for some weeks and we'll talk with our friends and allies and other signatories of the, of the deal who signed it and who remain loyal to it. Their supreme leader, Ayatollah al-Khamenei? Khomeini? Possibly. I'm not sure if it's yeah. the same guy. Ayatollah al-Khomeini. So they're, they're supreme leader. They're religious leader, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So Trump, he says he dismisses Trump's announcement as silly and superficial, adding he had maybe more than 10 lies in his comments. He threatened the regime and its people, saying, I'll do this and that. Mr. Trump, I'll tell you on behalf of the Iranian people, you have made a mistake. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. And on Trump's side, he, he feels like he's doing the best deal for this country. Yeah, oh, absolutely. So, yeah, there's a bit of a conflict there. <laughs> Gina Haspel, President Trump's nominee to lead the Central Intelligence Agency, is expected to promise that she will, quote, not restart a controversial interrogation program that nearly derailed her nomination if she is confirmed, the Washington Post reports. Haspel faces opposition from Democrats at Wednesday's confirmation hearing, which comes just days after she reportedly nearly withdrew her nomination amid mounting scrutiny over her role in the agency's enhanced interrogation techniques following the September 11, 2001 terror attacks. Mm. According to excerpts of her remarks for the confirmation hearing quoted by the Post, Haspel will acknowledge her role at the agency in that uh, in that tumultuous time, making a personal commitment clearly and without reservation to not revive the interrogation program that many have likened to torture, because it probably was torture. Yeah. Uh, the 33-year-old CIA, or 33-year CIA veteran has the backing of many Republicans, as well as Trump, who went to bat for her on Twitter repeatedly in recent days to praise her for being too tough on terror, but she faces opposition from Democrats who want more details on her involvement in the torture program as we'll call it, as well as her role years later in reportedly having uh, videotapes of these disputed sessions destroyed. Oh, wow. So the CIA had video and documents of their enhanced ter- interrogation techniques, which yeah. were waterboarding yeah. and uh, what, what pressure, posi- oh, pressure, stress positions, they called them. Like you put you on your knees and raise your hands over your head and tie your wrist and pull them back and oh, put, put you man. in all sorts of stress positions. Right. And they had video of all this, which, you know, if the the Hague, the International War Crimes Court, wanted right. to come after you, they look for evidence. Right. So the CIA probably thought, you know, maybe we don't want to keep all this evidence around. So she was involved in disposing of all that, which looks kind of fishy. 
Yeah. Are you hiding crimes? What are we doing? What are you doing? And so, and then this on the side of President Trump on the campaign trail, saying that he would he would bring back the the torture and the, the interrogation and the waterboarding. He thinks it's a great idea, and so that's kind of got some people's concerns. That's, yeah, that's scary. And now all of a sudden, ta da! It might have just been campaign rhetoric, but, but he said it. And she may be. This is why you really got to be careful with your words. Yes, right, because. She may be the best person for it. And the people in the CIA say that she is. Oh, and you just if you just hadn't said all this stuff. Yeah, so we'll see what happens. Okay. And if you see a picture of her, she looks like the most unassuming person. Oh, yeah. Just walking down the street, you wouldn't pay a, 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 any attention to her yeah. at all. She doesn't even look like she'd waterboard you. She's the perfect spy. She totally is. She just blends into the background. Like some school teacher. It's great. Uh, those pesky robocalls, at best annoying disturbances and at worst costly financial scams, are reportedly yeah. getting worse. Although uh, though automated calls have long plagued consumers, the volume has skyrocketed in recent years, reaching an estimated $3.4 billion in April, according to the uh, company Umail, which collects and analyzes calls through its robocall blocking service. That is an increase of almost $900 million a month compared with a year ago. Federal lawmakers have noticed the surge. Both the House and the Senate have held hearings on the issue within the last two weeks, and each chamber has either passed or introduced legislation claimed at curbing such abuses. Mm. Federal regulators have also noticed issuing new rules in November that give phone companies the authority to block certain robocalls. So you have, like, do not call list? Yes! Yeah. Uh, I pulled up the federal do not call list. All my phone numbers are on there. We're just getting just destroyed with robocalls. I have an app on my phone from my cell phone provider. Yeah. It catches probably 10 a day that don't even get to my phone because they already know it's a robocall phone number and the app I have blocks but that phone call. How do you make it stop? They say the worst thing you could do is interact with the phone call. Yeah, Because some of the phone calls it says, please press 1 to get your name taken off the list. And all it does is dump you into a operator who tries to do whatever they were trying to do in the first place. Oh. It's just these tricks to get you to give up. E- either it's like a credit card situation yeah. or insurance. or uh, My favorite's the one that says, you have committed horrible crimes. Call now or go to jail. And you're, like, Whoa. you're like, I did? When did I do what that? What were they? I was at work all day. Oh, well. Finally, the United Kingdom's teachers union told the Telegraph last week that some schools are removing analog clocks from the classroom because students can't read them and it stresses them out. Hmm. The old-fashioned devices are being replaced with digital devices instead. The current generation aren't as good at reading the traditional clock faces as older generation, says Malcolm Trobe, a deputy general secretary at the Association of School and College Leaders. They are used to, used to seeing digital representations of time on their phone, on their computer. Nearly everything they've got is digital, so youngsters are just exposed to time uh, being given digitally everywhere. These British students aren't alone. A few studies and surveys conducted in recent years have uh, supported the idea that younger generations struggle with telling time the old-fashioned way. Uh, well, I, I, every kid has a little trouble with it at first. Oh, yeah, it takes a while. Yeah. Until they learn. Yeah. But now we're just going to skip that and just go right to digital. Oh, wow. I notice we do it here, too. Yeah, and they I, say it's... Stri- we're supposed to be getting a digital clock in here. Oh, wow. I guess. Don't you remember? We yeah, talked yeah. about it for a week. It was forever ago, and it's still the analog one on the wall. Maybe they want us to learn how to read this one first. Yeah. Hmm. I feel weird being so sentimental about that because there's no, like, I, I can't think of a good reason why we have to keep teaching that skill, but it seems seems like something you don't want to lose, yeah. like cursive. It's like cursive and clock reading. Like, we don't really need it. The technology's not going backwards, but, oh, I mean, boy. kids are going to look up at Big Ben and be like, wow, <laughs> so weird. Maybe it's about childhood emotional neglect. 
That's what we'll talk about next. Mm. Coming up next, we're going to be getting into relationship uh, transformation and some of it may be going back to childhood emotional neglect. Um, Dr. Jonas Webb will be joining us and uh, walking us through some of the keys to how our childhood might impact our adulthood. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, we've, we've all come from families and, uh, and some maybe not ideal kind of situations and not the typical, you know, ma and pa raising you with love and comfort. And sometimes you do have loving, caring parents, and yet you still also have emotional uh, issues and, and um, emotional neglect from your childhood. Here to talk to us about it is um, uh, Janice Webb. Dr. Janice Webb is a recognized psychologist and an expert with over 25 years of experience. She's the author of the best-selling book, Running on Empty, Overcome Your Childhood Emotional Neglect, and another book, Running on Empty No More, Transform Your Relationships with Your Partner, Your Parents, and Your Children. And uh, Dr. Janice Webb is, um, uh, we're honored to have her on the show, and hopefully she can help us understand this somewhat hidden issue of childhood emotional neglect. Janice, thank you so much for being with us today. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me. This is, talk about this, because we've we've heard on the show before about attachment disorder and um, is is managing our childhood emotional neglect, is it similar to attachment disorder? What, what happens to us with, um, when, we, when we're suffering from childhood emotional neglect? It's, um, it's sort of a very subtle form of attachment um, problem. It's, you might, as you said, you might have very loving, caring parents, but if they don't notice what you're feeling and respond to that enough, um, they, your parents can inadvertently, even if they love you and provide you with everything else, leave you struggling in certain ways that I've seen over and over in thousands, literally thousands of people. And so the footprint of your parents failing you in this very subtle way is growing up to feel kind of disconnected from yourself and unsure of what you want and what you feel and what you need, putting other people before yourself and a kind of a, a feeling of emptiness, and that's because you're disconnected from your own feelings, which are essential to make you feel really connected in the world. Mm. So this is because we've neglect, had our emotions neglected young, it seems like we're kind of disconnected from them when we're older. Yes. The, the message, when your parents don't notice your feelings, or if you grow up in a family that really just doesn't talk about or address emotions in general, the message, the sort of um, subliminal message you receive is emotions don't really, they're just irrelevant and, or they're not welcome in this home. And so as a child, to cope with that, your brain automatically pushes your feelings down in a way and you grow up just ignoring your own feelings, which feels like just what everybody does, but it's not because your feelings are what connect you to other people, what help you make decisions. Your feelings motivate you. They're your passion. 
they tell you what you want, they tell you what you need, and if you're not if you if you don't have access to that font of energy and direction, you end up feeling a little bit lost in life. Mm. Yeah, because then what would you you know, base your decisions on. If you can't trust your emotions or recognize your emotions, then you are, I guess, you're rudderless. Exactly. And that's why people who grow up this way and who end up with what I call CEN, childhood emotional neglect, um, as adults tend to put too much emphasis on other people's opinions and try to figure out what do other people think I should say? What do other people think I should do? And, um, it really doesn't work out very well. You don't end up getting your own needs met when you're living that way. Hmm. And um, this isn't something, I guess, I mean, it's it's kind of hard to say, oh, back to the parents, messing it up again. Yeah, I know. But it's not, it's not your intent. It's just that some of us, we don't know how to manage emotion anyway, and then we're raising our children with emotion. Exactly. It's not really... For most parents, unless they're really self-involved or abusive or addicted or something like that, it's not their fault at all. Um, And this is why I'm trying so hard to call attention to this problem, because so many people were raised by parents who were blind to emotion. And so they grew up blind to their own emotion. They're blind to their children's emotion. And it just repeats over and over through generations on and on. And it can be stopped is the big important thing. It really can be stopped. Um, once you decide to change it, this in yourself, you can fix it. And then your kids don't have to grow up this way. So part of it, I guess, is recognizing the uh, the blindness to it and the, uh, to talk about that. So So to know if kind of a, you were talking about the footprint of it. Give us some more examples of how we would know if we have um, this childhood emotional neglect um, issue, and then what can we do about it? Yeah, so I think it's, it's really hard to know because it's so hard to remember what your parents didn't do when you were growing up. You know, they didn't right. notice your emotions. That's a non-event. So it's so hard to know. But if you're if someone's listening to me now and identifies with what I'm saying or thinks, hmm, Maybe this could be me. Um, I did develop a special questionnaire to help people figure out if they grew up this way and if it's still affecting them, and it's on my website, emotionalneglect.com. It's the emotional neglect test or questionnaire, and uh, people can just sign up and take it. It's free. Um, And the way to fix it, um, I've developed a series of steps that works really well. I've done it in my office. I have an online program to help people, to walk people through it, and it's really just a matter of tuning in, you know, beginning to recognize that your feelings do matter. And it's amazing what happens when you start paying attention to your own feelings and actually trying to get in touch with them. You can break down the wall that blocks them off. And um, just paying attention starts breaking it down. And you'll start to notice yourself feeling more. And you can actually start listening to what those feelings are telling you. And the more you do that, the more you get. And it's just a matter of then learning the skills to manage those emotions. And all of that gets transferred down to your kids. Yeah. It's amazing. Well, and it's, um, it seems like one of the greatest resources we probably could give our kids is, you know, a better understanding of how to read their own, you know, their own compass, their own emotional insides. Exactly. It's a a very important part of emotional intelligence, which we now know 
is as important or more important than IQ in mm. life, happiness, and success. Do I wonder if um, – do you see a correlation between people that have CEN and um, anxiety and depression? And is it is it maybe that they manifested anxiety and depression younger, which is why that their emotions were more oppressed by their parents? Um, I don't really think it happens – that's a really good thought, but I don't think it happens that way for most people. I think that when your feelings are walled off – you don't get a chance to work through them and deal with them. So there might be anger, sadness, hurt, and other emotions that are just blocked off. So you don't even realize you have them, but they're over on the other side of this wall and, you know, just sort of sitting there and they get touched off really easily because you're not managing them. And I think that is a big contributor to why people get depressed and why people get anxious is because of all these cut-off feelings that are just sitting there, roiling away, needing to be processed. Mm. Is um, As you look at this, long-term, uh, you said some of the impact is that we're kind of blind to our emotion. We feel, we feel kind of uh, emotionless, maybe not knowing where to turn. What are some other things that happen to us if we have childhood emotional neglect? Yeah, so it's sort of a um, going through life not feeling like you don't really belong. A lot of people who grew up this way say that they feel like other people have some vital life ingredient that they don't have. You know, it's sort of this sense of looking around and seeing people who are really connected walking down the street or laughing and talking in a lighthearted way. It's almost like living life um less in color hmm. and just feeling a little different than other people and maybe wondering, you know, another big component of this is you may look back and see all the ways your parents were there for you, all the things they did give you and feel like you had a great childhood. So whatever doesn't feel right inside of you, you just feel like you're flawed, like it's your fault. Hmm. You know, it can't be my parents' fault. I'm the one who's really you know, I should be happier, I should be more this or more that. And so it's sort of a deep feeling of being inadequate or uh, flawed. Is this is this a more common issue today than before? Is that why you're now understanding it more? Or has it just been going on forever and we're just now, you know, putting a name on it? Well, I think it's been going on forever. And I think that because it it's not, you know, the mental health, profession looks at what happens to people to explain their psychology. And this is really something that doesn't happen for people. It doesn't happen to people. It's something that fails to happen for them. So it's just so invisible and subtle. And it's not dramatic at all for most people. It's just an everyday tiny life event that if it happens some is not a problem, but if it crosses a certain threshold, it becomes a problem. So I think it's just been really hard for the mental health profession to really see this and start to realize that it's a genuine problem that is just rampant in the world. Mm. And it seems like um, it might be, uh, I don't know, it, it seems like we would go numb because of it. This causes us to kind of numb out, which 
you see a lot of people numbing out of life, and we, we were you know a lot of people attribute this numbing nature of people to kind of uh, the technology world, and you know we're all just dr- drawn to our machines and we disconnect from the world. But those similar patterns might be happening simply because of our our inability to deal with our own emotion. I couldn't agree more. I think that's exactly right. There are so many ways. You know, a lot of people who have CEN feel numb, and that's a problem for them. They'll say, I feel empty, I feel numb. And when they start welcoming their feelings back and dealing with them, they don't feel numb anymore. Mm. Um, But other people have all of these emotions cut off from themselves, and so they're depressed or they're anxious, and they never know when those feelings are going to come back through the wall, and they'll they won't feel well. And so they spend a lot of time trying to make sure that doesn't happen, staying really distracted, staying engaged, never really wanting to sit with themselves. And those are the people that are chronically busy um, and avoiding their own emotions. Yeah. Uh, We're speaking with Dr. Um, Janice Webb, who is a recognized psychologist and expert with over 25 years of experience and the author of the best-selling books, Running on Empty, Overcoming Your Childhood Emotional Neglect, and Running on Empty No More, Transform Your Relationships with Your Partner, Your Parents, and Your Children. She has a website uh, that you can go to as well to get more articles and more information. Uh, But Janice, when I I look at this, um, so if I've kind of been um, had my emotions neglected in my childhood and I'm recognizing it now what's what's one or two things I can do today uh, I'm going to go I can go to your website and learn the the skills and the tools and the steps is there something I can just do immediately that would help me at least start to connect back into my emotion yes um, you can start checking in with yourself several times a day Um, close your eyes when you're alone and turn your attention inward and ask yourself, what am I feeling right now? And that is a really powerful tool. There are a few more steps to it. I mean, you can do it just that simply over just one minute time. Um, But there is a more, a a way to do it that is a little more effective that um, requires a few steps. And it's in my first book, Running on Empty, overcome your childhood emotional neglect. Um, But uh, in addition to that, you can start writing down, even if you don't come up with a feeling when you do that exercise, it still takes a little chip out of your wall. So every time you do it, it's beneficial, Hmm. even if you don't feel anything. Yeah. Well, and it's got to be overwhelming. We've had a man on the show before that um, had, um, he had, uh, Asperger's, and they were able to somehow reverse it temporarily um, with some some research they were doing at a university, and all of a sudden he could feel and connect with other people, and he found it actually – he actually connected into his emotion for the first time, and he found it – he said it was horrible. <laughs> it was like shocking. Do you notice as people start to reconnect to their emotions that that it's – it is – it's it's like – it's difficult. To, to start feeling again. Well, that's interesting. He said it was horrible. Yeah. Um, it is scary for people, and I think it stops, a lot of people stop short of 
really doing this process because, and I can't tell you how many people have said to me, I don't want to find out what's on the other side of the wall. And I completely understand that. But the thing is, it's there anyway, and it's driving you outside of your control. So if you were going to fall apart or become a mess by getting in touch with it, it would have already happened because it's already there. All you're doing is taking control of it when you allow yourself to feel it. So even if it it might be unpleasant in certain ways at certain times, depending on what's there, um, it's really no more unpleasant than leaving it blocked off. All right. Yeah, I mean that it is. It's it's still acting on us and with us. And then um, I guess the cool thing about uh, understanding this is that you can then not hand it down to the next generation. Instead, you can hand down he- healthier emotional uh, practices to your family. Yeah, that's actually why I wrote the second book. It's because once you start paying attention to your emotions and working on learning the skills, it makes such a big difference. And how you feel in your life, it's just, it's amazing. But then you have the person you're married to or your partner. You know, you have your parents who emotionally neglected you, and you feel differently about them once you realize that this has happened to you. And then you have your kids, and you may realize that you have not taught them about emotion and you haven't been enough aware of their feelings, and that can make people feel really confused and guilty and lost. Um, but there are all sorts of great things that you can do once you become aware to change how you are in all of those relationships. And once you start paying attention to your children's emotions, even if they're adults, even if they're toddlers or teenagers, you can start making a different sort of connection with them that changes everything. Mm. Powerful stuff. Dr. Janice, uh, thank you so much for your insight, your your help, and your time. Again, everybody, you can go to her website, doc, drjaniceweb.com, drjaniceweb.com, where you can get uh, more of those information, the questionnaires as well, articles, everything you need to be able to uh, to help understand this idea of childhood emotional neglect. Really, it does show you the importance of connecting and understanding a person's emotion and allowing some space and some time for them to share those feelings that are most important to them. Let's uh, take a break, come back. When we come back, we'll do a little Coach's Corner on how to get real with emotion. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball. Welcome back. You know, isn't it, um, isn't it interesting that we now, in today's day and age, we notice more and more people um, suffering from anxiety. We, we're trying to figure out why that is. There's probably a lot of reasons with technology, with expectations. We've done a lot of parenting changes over the years where we try to absorb all potential ills from our children. Um, So they're basically, you know, the ideal would be they grow up in a world that I guess is so germ-free and clean and perfect that there is no stress in life. And yet maybe that lack of stress is causing stress. Um, do you feel like, though, that you're great at understanding and recognizing the emotion of your children? Do you have the ability 
to handle their emotional differences. And and by the way, remember that some emotional outbursts are just normal, right? Most of them are just normal. It's uh, you know, there's the there's the differences in ages and developmental stages and the ability that some people, you know, at some certain ages children don't have the ability to manage certain emotions yet. They don't have the clarity to to just, you know, think their way through it and to cognitively change what they're feeling. So we may not want to push that on a two-year-old, a three-year-old, a five-year-old, but sometimes what you can do is just help recognize um, that, that these pressures in life exist, that they're there. And uh, not only are they there, but they're actually pretty valuable. It's, it's valuable for these kids to recognize what they're feeling. They're frustrated. And so one of the most valuable tools I think we can use when and again, this takes a little patience. And if you're not in a position where you want to be patient enough to let your kids share and go through their process, their emotion, you know, you've got stuff to do. Yeah, yeah. I don't care how you feel about the lawn. Just mow it. We may not care. But if you don't care, they know it. Right. And so there's a time where we should recognize the emotion. And it's one of the it's one of the, I think, most powerful skills I've learned as a parent is um, when I see they're angry, recognize it and don't just don't just notice it and react to their anger and their frustration, but hold it up for them to see. You are frustrated that you have to go mow the lawn. You're frustrated. I can see that. Tell me about it. And then you invite them to share about their emotion. If I can recognize my child is happy, then that tells my child I pay attention to him. Her. If I can recognize that they're sad, that tells my child, I pay attention to you. And I care enough to want to know why. Why are you happy? Why are you sad? But I also show them that they're always communicating to me about their emotion. Part of emotional intelligence is the ability to, you know, recognize the emotion of others, but also the ability to lower those emotions. We all know what we need to do if we want to tick someone off, right? We can. Everyone listening can think of ten things you could do today to go make somebody incredibly angry at you. Think about it. All you'd have to do is, you know, when your wife says, "Oh, what a day," she's expressing emotion, right? Can you can you think right now of one thing you could say that would absolutely just make her frustrated with you? Oh, you think you had a tough day? Yeah, it sounds like it was really hard. What, did you stay home all day? Hmm. See where that's going? That ain't going to be pretty. So instead, what if we could recognize the emotion? You seem tired. You seem exhausted. I'm hearing. I'm picking up. I'm, it sounds like you had a hard day. What's going on? And invite them to share the emotion. The reason we want them to share the emotion is because then I can get more information about what they're feeling. Right? Instead of me having to make it up. I can get them to share their emotion. And by the way, by sharing their emotion, it also helps to lower their emotion. By them, by me recognizing it and asking them to share it and explore it with me, they then start to lower their own emotion. You want to help people, uh, you know, help your children when they're in the middle of a tantrum, recognize the emotion and see if you can't get them to share the story behind the tantrum. You don't have to agree with the story, but you can hear it. You can understand it. You can start to make sense of it. And that will just do nothing for you but give you more information. 
one of my favorite quotes about this uh, about this emotional management process is, um, in order to influence someone, you must first be influenced by them. And um, in order to be influenced, I have to listen to them, right? Uh, another great quote is by a guy named Joe Thomas that says, you can't meet a need that you don't understand. And just because I understand your need doesn't mean I need to meet it. But we need to be willing to show our kids, our family, the people we love, that I can see you have a need and I'm I'm willing to help you meet it. But I want to know what's going on first. And I may not meet your need. Once I learn what's going on, I may actually come back with a completely different approach that you may not like. But I'll know better how to handle it, better what to say. So we just need to recognize that emotions exist. Hold those emotions up and put a label on it for them and let them then explain the label. And by doing this, you put a little bit more responsibility back on them to own their emotion, that their emotions have names and that they can share what's going on with their emotion. That's so much better than just ignoring it, than telling the child to be quiet, than not ever addressing an emotion. Think about it. most of your most difficult issues you'll ever have in life surrounded, are surrounded by emotion. And if you've never been able to feel safe in your emotion, boy, that's a scary, that's a scary life. How do you proceed forward in a life that you know you're not emotionally ready to take care of? The only way to get through that would be to numb. And then the numbing would come down to drugs or alcohol or meds or opioids or anything else to help you get through it, including just escaping in your technology. So it is something, folks, that every one of us can do a little bit better of. The number one key is recognize the emotion to the person. I can see you're frustrated. I can see you're sad. Make sure when you recognize the emotion, you're not real judgmental. I wouldn't even ask it as a question. I'd state it. You seem bummed. You seem down. Then you can say, what's up? Explain. You seem happy. What, tell me about your day. So um, it's just, it's basic, right? It's basic, but it's hard. It's, it's hard, basic. Let's just try. Let's just all try a little bit better to recognize the people that are hurting and actually say something in a loving way. If your spirit and your tone is right and you show you just want to understand and help, That'll go a very long way to help people allow to allow people to share their emotions. Anyway, just my opinion. I'm your coach, your guide on the side. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We're doing what we can to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier, happier lives. Welcome back. You know, if you ever feel like the weekend simply isn't long enough to uh, regenerate and to rejuvenate, it's probably because it isn't. You got too much to do from home improvements to soccer games with the kids to just having some time to relax, maybe go on a date. These things, uh, they're not easy to accomplish in two and a half days. And so our guest, uh, we had a guest, Dr. Paul Powers, on the show. He's a management psychologist and consultant. He was on the show a while ago and talked about the pros and cons of a four-day work week. And I continued the interview um, by asking, how can an employee approach their employers about starting a four-day work week? I would start by uh, going online. They can go to my website, by the way, and, 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 and 
promote it, drpaulpowers.com, and bring it in to human resource people and say, I'd like you to read this. I'd like us to have an open forum. Let's have a town me- company town meeting. Let's discuss this, see if we might at least try it to see how it works out for our business, because I think it's a good business idea. Again, we're not talking about something that, oh, this is kind of warm and fuzzy, yada, right. yada, you know, kumbaya, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. This is a good, solid business idea. Let's discuss it. Let's see how we might try it. You know, there's going to be, a, uh, you're an over-the-road driver. Uh, you're a bus driver. There may be many situations where it doesn't work. However, the reality is already that there's some, I forget exactly what the number is. I think it's, uh, you know, it's over 40 percent of companies are already offering work, uh, flexible four-day work weeks to some, to some employees. Again, it might not fit all employees within your organization, and it might not fit all organizations. But um, uh, but let's try it. It's a great idea. Well, and it might even be a way to stand out. I mean, if you're proactive enough to go get the article, in fact, we just posted it on our Twitter feed. So at Dr. Matt Show, there will be a link to, to the article and to your site there, um, uh, drpaulpowers.com. But it might make a, be a way that I can go stand out with my boss and say, hey, this look at me. I really want to try this. I think it would work. Let me be the tester. And if I go hit it out of the park, I stand out. Well, one of the, one of the ways to get promoted in a competitive environment is to be focusing on unmet needs, to be producing creative uh, solutions to problems that exist, to look to where my creativity, my ideas – uh, my options, my discussions, my teamwork with other people can improve the bottom line. It's it's being uh, an integral part of the enterprise rather than I'm here to punch my ticket, I'm here as a worker bee, uh, and I want to leave most of my brain power on the doorstep as I work in, as I walk in. And a lot of a lot of organizations. Uh, uh, I work with organizations who are looking to get away from that mentality. I call it uh, sort of the, 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 the burrow complex, where people still are thinking in terms of the carrot and the stick. Yeah. Uh, that works well for donkeys, works well for burrows, uh, really doesn't work at all well for human beings. Human beings are not motivated by a stick or a carrot. They are motivated by independence, by flexibility, by challenge, by the quality of their colleagues. Those are the things that move people to motivation, Yeah, move people to be more productive. And, and, and so part of that is me seeing that I need to, I need to kind of be my own, my own, my own product, my own company where, where I, I'm fighting for a new way of doing this, but I'm bringing something to the company that is unique and, and we'll, we'll cooperate. We'll work together on it. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's like my career becomes my my job, yeah. uh, which is a part of my my career as I'm building it becomes my own little enterprise, and I'm looking for I'm looking for ways every day to improve things beyond just the scope of my job. That's how one gets recognized, and once one gets recognized, that's how one gets promoted, and that's hmm. how one gets raises, and those are all good things. Yeah, and. I guess when we when we as we're wrapping this up, Paul, does there's there's no harm to trying it, but be informed. So we've got to get we got to get that article you're talking about. And uh, at some point, though, you 
if you're not liking your current condition, it might also be worth, you know, looking into other options, finding other organizations that may be more that are more supportive of this. Life is too short. I tell people all the time, life is too short to be miserable 40 or 50 hours a week. Uh, If you are not happy in your job, the first thing I suggest you do is take a good look in the mirror. Are you in the right job? Are you putting enough into it so that you're getting enough out of it? Or are you sitting there, you know, expecting to be rewarded for something you're not producing? Now, if, if that is not the case, then maybe you need to look at the function you're in. Maybe working in the financial end of things or the administration end of things is not your cup of tea. You should be looking at a different job, different type of job. However, again, we answer that question, say, no, really, you know, I'm an accounting type of gal. I really love this, but et cetera, et cetera, but it's still not working out. Well, then now the question becomes, if it's not you and your attitude and your work habits and your work ethic and all that, and if it's not the function that is the job itself, well, maybe it's the environment. And at that point, it may well be appropriate to start getting a couple of my books and figuring out uh, how to change jobs, how to move forward. But... Uh, a good job is a hard thing to find. No two ways about it. It's, yeah. it's a full. It can be a full time job looking for a job. So that I would. I don't. Even though I sell books about job change, I would always have people take the first two steps first before they think of strapping on their parachute and bailing out. That was Dr. Paul Powers, a management psychologist and consultant, also um, author of the book "Don't Wear Flip Flops to Your Interview." and other obvious tips that you should be following to get the job you want. Yeah, you don't need to jump. You don't need to bail out too quickly. But you also might be able to push for a better life and uh, by you know improving your, your results, improving your um, output. That sometimes gives you a lot of power and a lot of freedom. Well, we will continue the journey, folks, doing what we can on this show to give you the latest and greatest research and information so that you can live and create the life you want to create a healthier, longer living life, one that can touch more hearts and more minds. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. Dr. Matt here along with Terry and Becca. The gang is gathered. And boy, oh boy, have we got a lot to talk about today. In fact, uh, the LDS Church has decided no more scouts. In, in 2019. 2020. Yeah, the end of the year of 2019. That's that's it. It's done. So now my boys are like, so do we need eagles or are we going to still do we need to still do our scout? I'm like, yeah, you yeah. need to yeah. Before, now, before it runs out, right? Yeah, we've got we've got two more to get done before this whole thing's done. I mean, How old are they? Uh, I have a 13-year-old, a 15-year-old and a 17-year-old. The 17's uh-huh. almost done just doing his paperwork. I'd mind it. 14 so yeah. they're kind of dragging their feet yeah it's actually you know it, it, the joke is it's really the moms that get the eagle yeah pretty much so apparently <laughs> the moms are dragging their feet i guess but a lot of moms have just breathed a sigh of relief Whew. now i don't need to do that but now do you what do you do do you push your last child to hurry and get his eagle so he could so they've all got it well you can join a boy scout troop they have other 
Boy yeah. Scout troops mm-hmm. not associated with your church. Yeah, but that would that would mess up their fortnight time. Oh, right, true. Right, you well, gotta okay. Can't do everything. Hmm. <laughs> you can't do everything. So uh, Fortnite, interesting news. Fortnite added Thanos. You're right. Interesting news. Pardon? Thanos. Thanos, the villain from the latest uh, Avengers movie, is now in Fortnite Why? with his Infinity Gauntlet, with the the the, the Infinity Gems, oh, the boy. stones. Yeah, sounds see, like it's kind of ruined now. Yeah, it might. <clears throat> they might have jumped a shark the other day when they added that character. We'll see. You're, jumped. You, ask your kids. They'll, they'll jumped know. a shark. You know what that term's about? No. I know what that term's about. So in, on the show Happy Days, there was an episode where oh, yeah. Fonzarelli really jumped a shark. Now I watched that's, it. That's the term now used for any TV show that just goes too far. Really? Yeah. Scraping the bottom of the you, barrel. You get this point where it seems like a show's kind of a show or event or yeah. something gets kind of desperate, so they try to do some attention-grabbing thing. Something so big. The Fonz sure. jumped a shark. Yeah. Okay. I yeah, like that. We have to explain jump a shark, and then someone else within the last week was explaining what an Instapot was. What's an Instapot? Oh, yeah, like a crockpot. It's pot. like a crockpot, but it's more trendy. But here's the funny thing. I'm the only one in the room that watched Fonzarelli jump the shark live. Live. Well, I mean, like, like when it first yeah. aired, yeah. I'm the only one. And? And so I'm the only one that actually has that context. I've seen the show myself. I've watched that episode. Yeah. But, I haven't. But yeah, Becca has. And it's on and, YouTube, and so you can watch it. All these people are uh-huh. using these phrases, yeah. like and as and the, as if they they're new and they are. Yeah. But they, you weren't there when it happened. And? I saw the Fonz. So you need to be there, or it doesn't count. Yeah. Okay. Well. That's fair. You know what I mean? It's like you're it's like you're stealing culture. Mm. It's like you're wearing a prom dress am from I, someone else's culture. Am I appropriating your yes. culture, Matt? I yes. apologize. That's exactly what you're doing. So um, all of that, uh, jump a shark. Yeah, it's a great phrase, great line. Uh, what other headlines do we have, Terry? What else should we be worried about? President Trump's high-stakes decision to withdraw the U.S. from the multilateral Iran nuclear deal has winners and losers and leaves serious questions about what happens next. But one clear loser is Boeing. After the U.S. and Iran signed the deal with China, Russia, and European allies in 2015, Boeing, Boeing signed a $17 billion deal with Iran Air to deliver 80 aircraft and another $3 billion deal, dollar deal with Iran's uh, another Irani airliner. Airbus also inked a deal to sell Iran Air 100 planes for $19 billion and only three of which have been delivered. The Boeing and Airbus license uh, licenses will be revoked, Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin said on Tuesday. The existing licenses will be revoked. We will consult with the U.S. government on next steps, Boeing Vice President uh, Jordan uh, Jondro said in a statement. So they're losing $20 billion, Boeing is, because of this deal. What? Other other U.S. companies also. That was part of the deal is you stop enriching uranium, we'll allow the, the open opening of your markets so that you can be on the world yeah. stage and have an economy yeah. again. And part of that was people coming in saying, airlines, you will need to update your airplanes. Sure. So they updated all their airplanes and all these contracts and there's other industries involved. Right. So it's more than just, we're not, you know, a treaty. It's there was a whole economic component to this and that's all being unwound. Well, plus whatever the billions of dollars as well that was given. Which was actually their money that we had frozen in accounts here. Yeah, but that's what you do when you put sanctions on. True. So we... Also created cash flow. I mean, this is a, this is a tangled web so, they're trying to undo. We'll see how this works. Fox, they've agreed in December to sell the assets in question to Walt Disney Company for fifty-two billion in stock. Remember that 
Disney was yes. going to get all the movies and the TVs and all this stuff. Comcast is considering making a play to break up that deal and has lined up around $60 billion in financing to make an all-cash offer for the Fox assets, the pe- uh, people close to the uh, negotiations say. Yes. Right, so so Disney makes a, a, a bid for the Fox, and then now they're waiting for you know the federal government to look at it. And then Comcast comes in with more cash to what? try to take it. So now you got this sort of you know bidding war. It seems like almost for the the Fox assets. Um, Comcast hasn't yet decided whether to proceed with the hostile bid. One pivotal factor is the outcome of the government's lawsuit to stop the pending merger of AT and T and Time Warner. If the companies are successful and their deal survives, Comcast would be emboldened to pursue the Fox assets. Arguments in the antitrust case against the deal concluded last week with the judge saying that he would announce his ruling on June 12th of the AT&T Time Warner situation. Oh, wow. So that's kind of holding up the big TV deal that Disney and, yeah. you know, everyone's like, oh, you could get the whole, like, X-Men and Marvel and put the whole Marvel universe back together. That's one aspect of the nerd you know, explosion that the happened when that all went together. Um, so that's happening. So, and and then there's like some past with the head of Disney and the head of Comcast. They yeah. both worked in Disney, and they're wondering if there's sort of, sort of like a rivalry happening here, and that's why there's competing bids for billions of dollars. Oh, Comcast is trying to take NBC Universal and use that to make like a, a kind of a clone of Disney with mm-hmm. theme parks because they have Universal Studios and have all these and kind of build it up in the same way. And it would be helpful if they had. The, uh, the library that Fox yes, has, the movies yes. and TV shows. So it's this whole component, but it's all waiting on this June 12th ruling on the AT&T Time Warner situation. Unbelievable. Fun, yeah. huh? Yeah, yeah. Four out of five Facebook users say they wouldn't pay $1 a month to banish ads on the social network, according to a recent survey by market research firm Alpha. Facebook is reportedly test marketing a paid ad-free version of its service, despite the recent onslaught of news about Cambridge Analytica, congressional testimony by Mark Zuckerberg, and the hashtag delete Facebook movement. The company's vast user base may not be discontented enough to force a business model change. Mm. Another survey results Facebook users overwhelmingly said that they would leave the service if the company began to charge $1 per month for certain key features like, you know, messaging. Like you know, it's free messaging. We we I think we enjoy being the product. That's really what they're trying to say. Is it? Yeah. Do we? Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's what you're saying. Because they're selling and you keep, yeah. and your data. And we yeah, exactly. We must love it. We get nothing out of it. We are the unpaid labor of big data. We have to pay. To have them collect the data on us. That's what they're saying, yeah. It's horrible. Yeah. Okay, last last story here. An elderly man was arrested Monday after he opened fire at a uh, McDonald's, firing at another customer in front of him at the drive-thru because he was too slow. Uh-oh, really? Police say John E. Douglas, 91, engaged in a verbal dispute with Philip T. Bailey, 39, outside a fast food joint around 3.45 in the morning. Police said Douglas became infuriated at the, the service was too slow and vehicles in front of him were not moving forward. That's when he began arguing with Bailey, an off-duty McDonald's employee, and fired a shot towards him. Bailey then defended himself by throwing a smoothie at the elderly <laughs> man, according to the Indianapolis Star. No injuries were reported. Both men were arrested. Oh, the old smoothie trick. <laughs> It's an oldie but a smoothie. So the old guy, 91 years old, gets mad, fires a shot. Yeah. In response, you throw a smoothie. We need to know what kind of smoothie. Was it yeah. strawberry? Was it chocolate? Is there a chocolate smoothie? I'm not sure. Can you put? Can you have a chocolate smoothie? Or is that more just a shake? 
Doesn't sound very good to me. Sounds yeah. like you could put like strawberries in a chocolate shake. I don't know. Most smoothies I've in, came in contact with had kale in them, so they're not very good anyways. So it's a great point. Kale is evil. I think kale ruined the smoothie world. Mm. A lot of people thought it made it healthier. I thought it just tasted more like a salad bar garnish. Right. It is. That's fair. It, it That's is. fair. I, I happen to like kale, but it, it really does taste like no. Now, what do you like clippings. about it? Um, you know, it, it, it might the... just come down to a moral thing. You know, you don't like the okay. taste, but you're like, wow, <laughs> this is so repulsive. It's got to be good for me. Is it more like of a, a moral signaling type of thing? Look at me. I'm better than you because I'm eating kale. Oh, or for sure. Definitely. Is it the Definitely. social <laughs> acceptance of others because they're like, wow, you're healthy. You, you know, there's kale. other ways to take a moral stand. Well, yeah, you know, you, I guess. I mean, I'm just, I mean, you could, Boy. You know, you could but, just stand uh, up for something else. Man. Other than just poisoning yourself with kale. I mean, a lot so of people good for like you, it. Though, and it just, I get such a self righteous rush out of it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I can give it up. I'm addicted, you know, Matt. What we always try to try is a sugar rush. Oh. Try a sugar rush. <laughs> is that the answer? Instead of the self righteous rush. All right, I will. I will do that and I'll a let you know. A lot of people argue for kale, but then the argument is it's, the taste is horrible. Oh, yeah. It's like it's, arg- awful. Yeah. it's like arguing for, I don't know. You could probably walk outside and taste anything in the landscaping, and it would be better than kale. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to fall for it. I'd rather just put some chocolate in my smoothie. Hey, uh, fun straight ahead. We're going to be talking about parents and, uh, and, and how to raise you know healthier kids, kids that respect authority, that value what's right, and even maybe take a, a, a moral stand on something other than kale. That's all straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Raising kids in today's society can be daunting. Uh, Where wrong is called right, smartphones replace human interactions, families are fractured, and children aren't maturing as quickly as they used to. But, uh, you know, sometimes it feels like parents are in a losing battle with their kids. So here to help us walk through this is one of our uh, favorites and great contributors on the show, Arlene Pellicane. She's author of the book, Parents Rising, and she's here today to share with us eight strategies to help parents find hope and practical solutions to the problems they face. Arlene, thank you so much for being with us again today. It's always so great to be with you all. Thanks, Matt. You bet. Talk to us about it. I mean, really, you, you've, you've hit it right on the head. I mean, up is down in today's world. Fast yeah. is slow. Smart is dumb. It seems like we live in this world of, um, of just contrast and opposites, and yet we're still trying to teach our kids to do the right thing, but the right thing is a little blurred. Yeah, and for you as a mom or a dad, you feel good if you feel like, I feel a little strange, like I'm going counterculture, or my kids are saying, the other kids don't do it this way, then you can say to yourself, hey, I must be doing something right, because, you know, you look all around you, and do you really want your kids to be looking at their smartphone all the time? Do you really want children that, like, you know, sass their teachers and are disrespectful? We don't want this. Right. And so there are different ways that you can raise your kids, and I love to give people hope that all around you, it might be a certain way. But once your kids enter the doors of your home, you can provide this culture that is so different. 
and that will really make that lasting change for their adulthood. Mm. And and they need it. And it's it's good to hear it from you, especially because I mean you're you you have a lot of uh, you know you've been on a lot of big shows and a lot of big. Uh, you know, opportunities to to kind of blast this message out there. Um, what I, I guess is it? Are we getting weaker as parents? Is that why we're giving into so much of this? And and or is it is it just that the waves are getting so much bigger from the world? I think I think that weakness is a big part of it. To be honest with you, because we have looked around us and we think, okay. How do we parent our children? And we look at psychology books and we listen to people on TV and do all these things where really we might be better off listening to grandma, listening to grandma, yeah. because they did not have these kind of problems that we have today. And so asking people, honor your father and mother, asking your parents, your grandparents, people of you know, the older generation and asking for parenting advice, because sometimes we're so into what's new, right? And what's fashionable. Well, what's fashionable is letting your child become your friend and letting their feelings take preeminence and, you know, not ruffling them too much to hurt their self-esteem. That's kind of what's new, but that is not producing resilient, servant-hearted, you know, moral kids. And so I think going back to that advice of our parents and then also realizing I have to, as a parent, stop questioning myself all the time. You know, am I doing this right? Am I hurting them? Should I let give in? But instead, really be more stubborn. My husband, James, will say, like, it's set in concrete. Like, whatever yeah. you say to me, child, or whatever you ask, the answer is still going to be no. It is set in concrete. And I think as, as parents, we need to assume that leadership role and not be afraid of that. And I think that's a huge problem in our society. We're afraid to step into that role as a leader of the home. We're kind of unsure, and our kids sense that, and they take over. Mm. <laughs> so yeah. it is a call to rise as parents. Go ahead and be the authority. Be the leader. Your kids, believe it or not, really want that and need it. Oh, it's so true. Is it? Um, what is it about us that makes us so afraid to toe the line, to take the stand? What is it that makes us question so much our own mm-hmm. ability? Yeah. Maybe we did not have a model ourselves. Maybe we were not shown by our parents how to do it. So we're not quite sure. Maybe we are looking around and we're so comparison oriented. Let me see. How do I look compared to others on social media? Well, I must be doing this wrong because they are doing X, Y, Z. They're in these activities or, oh, look, their child wears these clothes or goes to this kind of school. And so really, instead of looking all around us to compare, I think looking at scripture, looking at honor your father and mother, looking at children, obey your parents. If you can just get that right in your home, just so it's really simple, let's go back to the fundamentals. If you can get that right in your home, things will start to shift. Mm. But I think we're not looking at Scripture and at wisdom uh, from old, but we're instead looking, you know, in popular magazines and websites and all this. And so look where there really truly is wisdom, and I think we'll find that strength for leadership. Yeah, they um, they called that wisdom literature too. We don't. There, I mean, there's there's centuries of wisdom literature, just ideas that from our wisest leaders of all time that have been handed down, and instead mm-hmm. we're looking to the Kardashians, right. or we're looking. <laughs> so you've got, yeah. you know, you've got eons and or the millennia of wise mm-hmm. thinkers, or we can just go to whatever's hot today. Yes. Yeah, and that's what's going to be sensational. And you don't want sensational as a parent. You want smart. You want what's common sense. 
So good. Let's talk about some of the uh, the eight strategies you suggest. Um, one of them you already touched on is the Bible and prayer. Make sure the Bible mm-hmm. and its teachings and prayer are are present in in your life, in our family's life daily. Why talk about that? Uh, why would you know? I mean, for some again, they they may not be religious, but um, yeah. why, why is that so important? That spiritual core, you know, so it's not something just that, oh, we go to church or we go to temple, we go somewhere and we go there, you know, and that's it. And then yeah. everything else in the in your life is, is the same as your neighbor. But to say, wait a minute, this is really important to us to love God, to love others, to pray when we need things, to pray when we're thankful. That's important to us. And so the kids see this isn't just a ritual that my parents do, but they really believe in God. They really love God. And we see God moving in our family life. And when they see that, you know, that's when things start taking hold and making a difference. So it can be little things when your child is running down the hall. You know, you can I always laugh and tell parents, just grab your Bible and read it and Mm. just say, oh, look, child, I'm reading my Bible so that they see, hey, my parent actually reads this thing. Uh, If there's a problem at school, someone said something mean right then and there. God, we pray for this person that you soften their heart. And I pray for my child. You'd help them to be tough. Amen. Mm. You know, it doesn't have to be this long, drawn out thing that the kids are like, "Okay, there they go. For them to see that we bring our needs before God, and that's part of life. That's so good. And that is, again, it it just shows that also that there is this thing as having a belief and then having Mm -hmm. integrity to the belief. We're going to use it in our lives. Yeah. That's powerful. Another point you bring up is that amusement is not the highest priority. This is one that my kids do not understand. Right. They're like, why? You know. Yeah. So it used to be before technology, it's like, oh, we will go to the movies once a month, you know, or yeah. we will watch your favorite show once a week, you know, whatever. But today, amusement is right in their pockets. It's right on their iPad. Amusement is around the corner when there's dead time in the car, dead time waiting for the dentist. Any kind of dead time is used for amusement. And then the free time is that way also. And so it's this idea that the children are being taught that, wow, I am to be entertained. You know, don't allow me to be bored, parent, because, you know, I I need this entertainment. And for us as parents to realize, wait a minute, this is not my priority to be the cruise director, to be Miss Fun all the time. My priority is character. Like, what kind of character? Will this kid have self-control? Will this kid be able to, you know, sit through something, a boring lecture, and get something out of it, you know? So can this kid do that? And, And I think in our minds, we think, yeah, we want character. But in everyday life, convenience wins, unless we are intentional, because it is so convenient to hand a kid, here's your iPad, here's your video game, here's your shows, just, you know, leave me alone for 10 minutes. Mm. And that takes a lot of intentionality to say, wait a minute, amusement here is not my highest priority, even for myself, right? Because sometimes as the parents, we're the ones who want the amusement of the tech, but that's not the highest priority raising you while I have 18 years with you in my home. That's my priority of character. That's it. And that character seems to launch another one of your strategies about launching adults, not babying yeah. children. I mean, our goal is we're not just raising yeah. kids. We're raising adults. We need to raise yeah. an adult. You do not want to be part of that, you know, definition of, oh, an adolescent could go all the way to age 30. <laughs> like, yeah, you like, don't what? want that. Right. You want to be able to say, you are ready for college. You are ready for adulthood. I have taught you how to manage your money. I've taught you how to cook a meal. I've taught you how to apologize to people. I've taught you how to interview. Like, those are the skills that children need to grow into adults. 
And yet so many times, what are we doing? We're doing it all for them. We're hovering. And I'm a mom. I totally get that. I have an eight-year-old, and I have been known to trim her fingernails when my husband will say, she can do that. She knows how to do that. Why are you doing it? And we as parents, sometimes we make the way too easy for our kids doing things for them, which they can do themselves. So, you know, I'm not saying that your first grader has to, you know, go learn how to drive a car, but I'm saying that whatever age they're at, they should be learning that next skill that would be appropriate for that age, and we should be helping them instead of hovering over them and doing it for them. Hmm. We're speaking with Arlene Pellicane, who's the author of many books. The book we're talking about today is Parents Rising, uh, Eight Strategies for Raising Kids Who Love God, Respect Authority, and Value What's Right. It's really the tool we use today to to basically take back our families and our relationships with our kids to make sure that they they are successful um, instead of just you know facing the failure to thrive um, in life. One of the the points you also focus on is marriage that mm-hmm. marriage needs to take a front seat in our lives. Yeah, when that baby comes, it's like bye bye couple and hello parents. Right. Right. Absolutely. Everything, all the love goes towards that baby and rightfully so. But that baby's going to grow up and that baby's going to be able to do things on its own. And when he or she can, that couple needs to reemerge like, OK, let's go on a date again. Or, you know, let's go sit when we return home from work. Let's sit on the couch for five minutes and talk before the kids come and interrupt us. You know, sometimes you think, oh, well, then my kids need me. Well, you know what? Your kids really benefit when they see, well, mom and dad have a strong marriage. Mom and dad go out to date night. They kiss. They hold hands. They still talk and laugh together and have fun together. That's really important. So many times we just put marriage way in the back, and then we do everything around the kids. And then 18 years later, you're like staring at your spouse thinking, I have no idea what to talk about. Right. And you don't want that. And so you really want to take time to nourish the marriage, because when you do that, you're really also nourishing your kids. Oh, it's so true. And it's and we're we're modeling for them what healthy looks like. Otherwise, they'll never know if they've got it or not. Yes. They'll think, why do I want to go be a parent so I can dote on someone 24 hours a day? you know, the child. So they see, oh, my mom or dad, they do have a life outside of me. Of course, they're here to be my number one fan, supporter, help me, love me, listen to me, all those things, of course. But that, yeah, my mom and dad, they love each other and they actually have a life outside of me. That's really healthy for a kid to see. Absolutely. Is it, um, I, I guess when you look at it as uh, as an expert and somebody that that really is, is living it in your own life and trying to, mm-hmm. to do it, it's I mean, in a way, it's, it always is going to come down to family isn't – what's the word? It doesn't seem in the world to be like the ideal. It's not always as stimulating. as It's not always as fun and free and you it costs you money and it's expensive. I mean, it takes a lot of discipline. So it's almost like not – we've made it so raising a family and being a parent and being married, it's just not attractive. And part of it is, I guess we just need to buck the trend that it's about, or we need to make it look more attractive. Yeah. I am just like, everything within me is like, oh, but it is fun, and it, it is, is good, right. and it is attractive. And I think a lot of it is if parents, if we will put in the hard work of raising our kids to be these, you know, to teach them respect, to teach them 
honor, obey, all that. But with that, of course, with all the rules, there has to be a lot of relationship, a lot of fun, a lot of laughter, you know, doing things together, serving together, that things you enjoy. So it can't all be, you know, rules and teaching. But when you have that magic combination of rules with relationship, you will, like, I cannot think of anything I enjoy more than being a wife and being a mom. Like, it is so fun. My kids are, you know, third grade, sixth grade, eighth grade. So we're starting Mm. into those tween teen years. But I can honestly say I am still enjoying my son as an eighth grader, you know, just as much. It just changes. The relationship changes as he gets older and he's starting to separate and do things on his own. You know, so all those things, but to say, I think that is a call for us and for our listeners to say, how can we make marriage, family more attractive to the world around us? And a lot of it is just being willing to learn how to do it better. So we enjoy it ourselves. Once we enjoy it ourselves, then it's like, hey, we don't have to sell this thing. We're having so much fun that other people want this. Because at the end of the day, that security, love, belonging that comes from a good family, you can't get that anywhere else. Oh, it's so true. And and just, uh, yeah, just the fact that it goes on forever. It will be able to perpetuate. Yeah. I mean, when we're 80, we'll still right. be able to kick back and have these same moments. Yeah. It's powerful. Arlene, as we wrap it up, what would you say is the one thing we could do today? The one thing that if we just could go start this, one thing would make all the difference in our lives. I'm going to give you two little ones. Go go for it. The attitude of I am the leader. I have God-given authority to lead this home. I'm not going to be wishy-washy anymore. I'm going to be consistent. So go lead and be consistent and start it with mealtimes and bedtimes. So mealtime, make those screen-free times with your family. And if that's like, whoa, we don't know how to do that, then just start, you know, a few times a week where it's a screen-free meal. And then at bedtime, collect your de- the devices of your children. Don't let them sleep with their iPad or their phones, even if they're teenagers. I know, kind of crazy, because not much good is happening at 2 o'clock in the morning right. with that phone. So collect devices at night, and I think that's a very powerful step. Beautiful stuff. Arlene Pelicane's her name. Go to her website, ArlenePelicane.com, where you can get a bunch of uh, other books. She's, she's uh, written books with Gary Chapman. Five Love Languages, and um, other books. She's just a wonderful resource, and we're grateful that she's willing to talk with us um, so regularly. We will uh, continue learning. Straight ahead, we'll do a little empty news to see what, uh, you know, what we can learn from just the average person out there and some of the crazy news stories that you don't always hear about. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, folks. You know, it's time. It's time that we get to the empty news segment on the Matt Townsend Show. The empty news team. First on the scene. Fifth on facts. These are the stories that you didn't even know you needed to know. Uh, A raccoon family drops through the ceiling of a Michigan home. Boy, that would have been a beautiful, beautiful moment. Uh, Family sitting there uh, just, you know, having a, a normal, I guess, night when all of a sudden through the ceiling... Uh, falls a family of um, raccoons. The homeowner in uh, Sheridan Township sought help Friday after the raccoons fell from the attic. Police and firefighters easily picked up the four baby raccoons, but the mother eluded capture. She's, uh, you know, by the way, what do you do? Do you, how do you return the raccoons to the mother? I don't know. And it seems like a raccoon wouldn't just, uh, wouldn't walk away from her little cublings. 
They're little baby cubs. Not sure. Kind of did, did she run? Did they did they capture the mom? Apparently, yeah, they couldn't they couldn't get the mom. But, okay. Uh, well. uh, the the Department of Public Safety uh, they used a dog pat catcher pole. Oh, by the way, I guess they eventually collared her. Yeah. Oh, okay. But it took a while. She, they, she was scared. She was frightened. Well, of course. I you know there's nothing worse than a whole family just falling in on your living room. <laughs> it's just it makes for a really hard day. Well, you hear about them getting into chimneys and different crawl spaces where they can get out of the elements. Yeah. And you got to put up, you know, cages and grating and things to keep them out of your different areas. But yeah, there's what um locally they've had some problems with that and they you may need to wherever you live check maybe if there, it's an issue. Sometimes your local animal control that's like your municipality yeah. won't come and help with raccoons. Really, I like to call them raccoons, by the way. Um, <laughs> but they won't come help because they're they're for whatever reason they don't see them as like you know if you have like a loose dog right yeah. or something. But they'll come get a horse that runs through your neighborhood yeah, or, if or a bear is running around. If there's but a, a moose in your window well, but a raccoon, they're like, eh, that's not really our thing. And then you have to call some you know private exterminator, and they show up, and it's just a whole <sighs> deal. So anyway, they released the raccoon and the family out into the wild. Well, good. They got not bad. They get a whole new life. It's like the witness relocation program. Uh, how about this? A woman pays ten bucks, roughly nine ninety nine per gallon of gas on an accident Ooh. report form. Though, check this out. This is kind of crazy. The Wisconsin woman experienced some pain at the pump when she tried to fill her car at a new gas station that had not yet been opened. According to police reports, the woman came to the police station on May fourth to report that she pumped six gallons of gas into her vehicle and was charged sixty bucks. When the woman went to the store, a clerk there told her that the gas station was not yet open for business. The woman told the clerk and later the police that she did not realize the price sign was not on. Or Yeah, the price sign was not on, nor was the store open. When she realized that the price was nine ninety nine a gallon, she stopped filling up her vehicle. But wow. she'd already taken, apparently, six gallons. Six gallons. Hmm. See, this is the importance of paying attention. Absolutely. Like if, by the way, and I've made it a rule in my family, never to, you know, not, never to frequent a store or never to go to a store that's not open for business. All right. It's Just a good because rule. you never know what you're getting. Right. You know what I mean? But most gas stations, I mean, they'll, not most, but some gas stations will actually close at some point and you can still go and purchase gas. No, but this, th- these weren't even open. It's a new business. store, but it's not even open yet. That's why it's at $9.99. Yeah, I hadn't even changed the price from like. But how many people just go buy gas? Because I mean, the you yeah. can, shopping for gas really doesn't help a lot, and sometimes you just need gas. Yeah. Well, and then all of a sudden you're there, and you look up, and it's like nine ninety nine a gallon. What a rip off mm. taxes. Yeah, then you're like, wait, that's going in my car. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so anyway, uh, the police just said, well, you know, you'll have to maybe dispute that charge on your credit card. Wow, just do it through your credit card. All right. So no help is what you're saying. No hope there. Uh, a man robs a bank this, the day, by the way, after he was released from prison. Apparently did not learn his lesson in prison. Authorities say the man uh, sent to state prison for bank robbery has robbed the same Cleveland bank branch the day after his release. No, it was the same one? Exactly. Oh. Did he walk in and they went, wait a second? Yeah. Federal prosecutors in Cleveland say 40-year-old Marquico Sonny Lewis was indicted Tuesday on a single count of bank robbery for robbing a Cleveland Key Bank branch on April 12th. Hmm. Prosecutors say he took just over $1,000. Lewis of Maple Heights was sentenced to 30 months in prison in April 2016 after pleading guilty to robbing the same branch back in November 2015. Wow. 
So, you know, I mean, it's about every 30 months you just get another grand. It's just another withdrawal. Yeah. Huh. Maybe he just doesn't understand how the banking system works. Or the criminal system when they keep records of what you've done in the past. Apparently, he's not getting the memo. Hmm. Hmm. Maybe the bank just has really great marketing. Just can't stay away. Yeah. Yeah. Get out, see that billboard. Reminds me of why you went to jail in the first place. We'll, we'll get you a free account. Uh, here's, uh, by the way, Chipotle is always trying to pick up their reputation. They've had a few bad moments. But, right. But they're really, uh, they're, they're changing it now. Chipotle doesn't deliver. So a D- Denver couple took matters into their own hands by delivering their baby in the restaurant's parking lot. Mm. On the morning of April 10th, Adriana Alvarez went into labor with her fourth child. The baby's father, Saul Flores, called 911. The dispatcher is like, I think you need to pull over. And uh, they ended up in front of a Chipotle. <laughs> That's and funny. Alvarez said it was really weird because, um, you know, he eventually was born in the Chipotle parking lot. Yeah. So he's become the Chipotle burrito baby. Basically, yeah. Yeah. Which, by the way, a Chipotle burrito is about the size of a healthy baby. I was just thinking about Don't that. Don't you think about a seven-pounder? Yeah, it's pretty pretty hefty-sized burrito there. Um, to celebrate, Chipotle invited the proud parents, the dispatcher, and the whole all of their families to a restaurant for a one-of-a-kind baby shower. They had a cake and cupcakes with faux burritos on top. Faux, faux burrito. burritos. And they gave Jaden a swaddle blanket that looks like a tortilla. Aw. Isn't that cute? No, wait. They missed an opportunity. It should have been one of those little foil wrappers. (laughs) (laughs) It's only fitting that Jaden was born in a Chipotle parking lot. His parents met at Chipotle. And at one point, they both worked at Chipotle. That was the point when I saw that story. I was like, really? I mean, you know that some things are just destined. I guess. Like a baby. They named him Chip. Jaden Chip. No, they didn't. Really? No, I made that up. Oh. Not like <laughs> Chip Flores. Not little E? No. Like E. coli? No. Oh, I'm sorry. That's not what Chipotle's <laughs> about. Chipotle's about delivering your love. I read the news. I don't know. Your relationships. It's where you can go find a hot life together with somebody. Apparently. And a hot meal. It's where you've... You, you have your relationship. You have employment. You have the furthering of yeah. your family. Yeah. Right there. They deliver everything but your food. You can get a job, you can get a wife, and you can get a baby. Wow. All Full for the low, low price of seven ninety nine. <laughs> Chipotle. Making the delivery count. <sighs> Good stuff, folks. See, this is the news you don't get anywhere else. That's why we do it. On the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break, come back, visit our good brethren at BYU Sports Nation, and find out what's coming up in their world. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends. It's time to shoot it down to our good brethren at BYU Sports Nation, Spencer and Jerem, and let's find out what's coming up on their show today. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, Matthew. How are you both? Great. I feel like it's been forever. I know. I just keep taking a little vacation here and a little vacation there. You know how it is. Well, yes, you know. we know how it is when you work the system, Matt. <laughs> work in the system. Use them or lose them. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's, you know, it's just, it just feels so good to like spend time with your family. Um, hey, here's the deal, guys. By the way, I don't know if you noticed it. Uh, Golden State and the Rockets, they're done. The Rockets, here we go. By the way, this was it's all. Beginning. This Everybody is, got what they wanted. Right. But the funny thing is, is we knew about, we. this is what they were saying would happen in October. Yes. So. Was it all worth it? 
Well, it all led to this. I mean, it all led to this. Well, we knew it'd kind of be here. Most of the time, sports is pretty predictable. Yeah. When it's when it doesn't play out like we think, that's when it gets real fun, right? Yeah. But what we actually wanted was the two heavyweights in the West to embrace a showdown, right? So right. here we go. Houston Rockets, Golden State Warriors. This should be a really fun series. Is this the real— I'm taking the Warriors. You're taking the Warriors. I am, mm-hmm. too. Yeah. I am, too. And is this going—the winner of this, do you think, wins it all? Absolutely. There's no one in the East that can contend with those two, in my opinion. I don't oh, think it's close. Oh, oh, oh. You know who it reminds me of? It reminds me of the BYU um, lacrosse team. What a, ah, what a dramatic win last night. finish. Incredible. Un- undefeated Utah. Yeah. 16 and 0. Number two in the country. Next year, they're not going to be a club team competing against BYU. They're going to be a Division One team. Wow. Which is a big deal. Yeah. Um, and BYU tie game. Under 10 seconds left. Scores. Chris Severson. Boom. Upset. BYU into the uh, the national semifinals tomorrow night. Oh, that is huge. That's a big deal. Against Utah. Did um, Now, do you guys cover that? Yeah. Today we're talking about it. Is that's that's I used to sideline BYU lacrosse on BYU TV back it, in the day. It's the it's a big thing. They're taking off. This lacrosse thing's legit. It's all the rage. It's all if my kids at, play. If you're at Virginia, Yale, or Johns Hopkins, that's right. Uh, An Ivy Leaguer. Or Duke for that matter. Yeah. In the West, there's not too many uh D one programs. Denver has one, Utah's gonna have one. Um so in the West it's I I mean, BYU competes in the MCLA. It's the we're not D one, but this is the next highest level club lacrosse. It's just above Ward Ward lacrosse ball. Not even close. Okay. Michigan, Oregon, Arizona, BYU. Ooh. There's a lot of big schools that yeah. compete in it, and the Cougars are perennially perennially a top ten program. BYU is really good. They won the national title four times. Wow, really good. It's like rugby almost. Rugby has been better in its sport. I would say there's more club lacrosse teams competing. Okay, uh, so take it for what it's worth. Yes. So Both what are, are tremendous extramurals? So you're going to talk about that on your show. Anything else? Today is loaded. Spencer, tell tell the people what we have. Uh, if you could re-rank all 130 college football teams following spring practice, mm-hmm. where would you put BYU? USA Today has come out with their list, and it's not good, Matt. Oh, no. It's not good. Really? <laughs> Darn it. Also, in the spirit of Kurt Warner, who has said, former you know, quarterback, yeah. won Super Bowls, he said he wants to come back now in the NFL. We're asking, which BYU legend do you want back for one year right now at their age? Like at their current, current age. It's not like, Jim McMahon in his prime. It's like, right now, you don't want Jim McMahon. Okay? <laughs> so so who do you want? Plus, uh, our conversation with Brandon Davies, former BYU basketball player, who's in Lithuania tearing it up. Uh, we're going to talk to him and then get a little insight into the Kansas City Chiefs and what Tijon Kroma did to impress uh, the coaches and general management enough to sign a contract. Yeah, the publisher of ChiefsDigest.com. Matt Derrick joins us to uh, give us the insight on T. John. And is Daniel Sorensen going to be a starter for the Chiefs this year? Ooh. I don't know. Is he? Well, we, that's why we ask the questions, man. You guys ask great questions. And I love your answers even more than your questions. Just so you know. Hey, that's the show, uh, BYU Sports Nation, folks. It's in about five minutes from right now. You'll get to enjoy these two guys, Spencer and Jerem. They're the greatest. And... uh Obviously, they know what they're talking about. You know, unlike me, they are informed. <laughs> they know how to. They know how to make it work. They know how to make it stick. So stick with us, and we'll get you uh, right to their front door. Also, uh, as you know, at this time of the show, we always like to end with a, a hero story. And today's hero is a four-year-old superhero. 
this is America's latest superhero and the only superhero with the power to feed the homeless. By day, Austin Perrine is a mild-mannered four-year-old from Birmingham, Alabama. and uh, But once a week, he turns into his alter ego, a superhero, set on feeding as many homeless people as possible. He likes to go by the name President Austin. Austin Perrine has made it his mission to hand out food to those who need it. Once Austin learned uh, some people are homeless and some are hungry, he launched his caped crusade, told his mom and dad that he he wanted to to use all of his allowance and money that they would spend on toys to go toward chicken sandwiches instead. After he gives out each sandwich, he gives each person a bit of advice. Don't forget to show love, he tells them, and most do immediately. One man who received a sandwich, Raymond Baugh, says the kid gives him hope. Everyone who meets Austin leaves with hope. That's why, with any luck, someday President Austin won't be a superhero anymore. He'll be President of the United States. How cool is that? Little four-year-old kid just decides to take his, uh, his, his time, his money, his energy, and his love to the streets and feeding the people of Birmingham, Alabama. So he's the hero of the day. Austin Perrine is his name. And uh, again, it's out of the mouth of babes, right, that we all uh, can grow and learn. That really is what a hero is, somebody that's just willing to give and do something that they can. You don't need to be the president to do it, for heaven's sake. Sometimes you just could be a four-year-old kid. That's the show. Again, we can't do it without you, but we'll be back tomorrow with more ideas, more tools to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier, happier life. But stick with BYU Broadcasting because Sports Nation, BYU Sports Nation, is up next.